Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> it. Chapter 1. When you're a kid, you think the universe revolves around you. You think that you'll always be protected and cared for. Then, one day, you realize that's not true. Because when you're alone as a kid, the monsters see you as weaker. You don't even know they're getting closer. Until it's too late. We are back in Derry with the first cinematic adaptation of Stephen King's book. For an in-depth three-hour discussion about that source novel and the 1990 miniseries, you definitely need to listen to our original Stephen King's It show before this, because we are focusing tonight on the 2017 movie and will be expanding on the points made there. With us are Karu Nagisa. Hello there. Hello. And Debbie Morse, both from the Sequentially Yours YouTube series. Hello. Hello. And I'm sorry about this, folks. This is how he wanted to be credited. Brendan Agnew, eater of worlds, master of the fallen, king of nightmares and bane of martyrs. He is of the Synapse podcast. <laughs> yeah, that was probably a bad idea, but I'm going to own it anyway. <laughs> eater of worlds. Okay. The marketing for it was smart as hell, baiting everyone with Pennywise and focusing on jump scares. In fact, it worried me how on the pulse it was in delivering to people exactly what they want. Usually that results in a shallow and asinine distraction, possessing little beyond the trailer to engage with. A whole slew of recent horrors have ended up bland and formulaic as a result. What perturbed me at first before I'd actually seen it was that there is so much more to this story than a scary clown that makes you jump. What gave me hope was seeing the kids in costume and context and hearing snippets of their conversation. The fact that for more than a year in the run-up to release, the creators published imagery on social networks that suggested they knew what they were dealing with and crucially that they were as excited to be making this as the fans would be to receive it. And I think we need look no further than that two-pronged attack for its success story. They made the fans aware that they were going to be faithful, prodded a lot of people with the clown stick, and allowed the buzz to circulate and redouble. One of the critics that I saw uh, talking about it said that he, they turned the fans into nodes, in that they would rebroadcast and, uh, and redouble the buzz. Then when the film turned out to be of great quality, it already had a rapidly cresting wave to ride, and it would turn out to be a crest that would rise still further and last, rather than collapsing like the mummy did once everyone had glanced behind the curtain and found the whole backstage area would just be a cash vault. An empty one. It's not enough to just produce a great movie if nobody sees that great movie. The Iron Giant did that, and nobody knew, because attention was all on 
The Sixth Sense, which was, at the time, garnering similar buzz to what It Chapter 1 is currently enjoying. The Sixth Sense came out of nowhere, making it a sleeper hit, and it maintains that by constantly rewarding you beyond the twist, so when you go back, it's still fantastic. You can talk about it. The Iron Giant was an unseen gem that garnered cult status, but it's too time-displaced, it's too esoteric, and it's too quirky to snare major audiences. It Chapter 1, however, was a confidently calculated hit with the decades-ingrained notoriety of the book, the pop culture know-how of the shabby miniseries, and a unilateral mistrust of clowns, all boosting its flight. But it was made with a knowledge of what people really want to see beyond the flash and crackle of promotion. They want to see a great story. And while in all three cases you get that, only it had enough front-loaded interest to succeed in the precise way it has done. To the point where some people are labelling this not a horror film. Now why could that be? Is it not scary enough to be classified as horror? My audience both times were on the edge of their seats, biting their nails and squeaking with fright on cue. People die. Children die. Messily and horribly. And we were all horrified. Is the idea of a whole town that are prepared to let sacrifice a portion of their young in exchange for harmony not fucking terrifying enough? Is it not a horror because it's a monster movie, which makes Alien not a horror anymore? Must horror be reduced strictly to stalking killers, vengeful ghosts that rush at you screaming, and smirking, sadistic human torturers? Is that what horror must be to keep its badge of purity, this limited and limiting collection of tropes? Was it too funny to be a horror film? Evil Dead 2 says hello. Is Shaun of the Dead the romantic comedy with zombies it's been frequently billed as by Edgar Wright, or a very effective horror because thanks to the romance and comedy you actually care about who might be killed? Saying it isn't really a horror is rather like saying a filet mignon lovingly prepared to the perfect temperature isn't really a steak, or that Iron Man isn't really an action film, or that Disney's Beauty and the Beast isn't really a romantic comedy. Put simply, the words we conjure up and slap onto our genres are too clumsy for the best films that sit in actuality within many circles at once that transcend genre. Iron Man is an action sci-fi personal drama. Shaun of the Dead is a romantic comedy horror satire. Beauty and the Beast is a romantic comedy drama musical fairy tale fable and so on and so on and so on. These are just words. These are just symbols. They are too crude and specific to be held to in such reductive ways. Unlike Andy Machete's debut horror film Mama, which we saw a couple of weeks ago for the first time, and it started out very intriguing and proceeded to squander nearly everything interesting that it could have done with increasingly bizarre and yet industry-standard decisions, it moves forward with the same confidence as its marketing. It paces itself with a 135-minute duration, uncharacteristic for horror, and it sets everything up for scrutiny, putting you at a time and in a place so that when things become upset, it registers. The central cast of kids are charming as hell, and the grander picture of what has been happening for a long time on this site unfolds through their experience and encounters. They are all curious enough to further the story, smart and agile enough to run away like hell when it counts, and they bounce off one another in thoroughly human ways. 
Stan is largely sacrificed with full knowledge of what happens to him and his germophobia is passed along to Eddie. Richie provides seriously needed comic relief at the darkest of times with infectious enthusiasm despite having no noteworthy family life. Mike is sidelined for way too long and passes his historical fascination with the town along to Ben, who also appears to be without home conflict. And our main focus is on Bill and his empty house, which, aside from one terse exchange with his father, seems to have become the norm for him since Georgie was taken. They wisely incorporated his fixation on the barons in the book into an ongoing search for his brother, filling in a line that King never really seemed to. And Bev, whom I was most worried about the portrayal of, knocks it out of the park as the loser who has to overcome the most horrendous of domestic nightmares. Far from the pushy, shouting man in the miniseries or the growing threat in the book, this version of Mr. Marsh is a flesh-crawling predator, leaving you in no doubt as to both his intentions and hinting strongly at his past atrocities, that this young actress, Sophia Lillis, is able to so stunningly sell us on such a complex young girl defies her years. A certain amount of streamlining had to take place to get those hundreds of pages into just over two hours, but pretty much everything of importance remains. The other half of the book, the gathered adult losers and their lives, was always the less compelling of the segments to me, and I dare say a lot of people. I was always simply waiting for their passages to play out, watching for clues as to how the children had developed, and waiting for the next flashback. You can view it in one of two primary ways, though. The first is a horrific premise that a predator is eating children but meat alone is not satisfying enough it must scare them most of the way towards death seven children are wise enough to understand this and they are able to overcome their fear and kill it that is a strong story in and of itself the other way is that there is a town full of people who are able to turn a blind eye to tragedy seven children are unable to do this and their shared intelligence compassion strength cunning and resourcefulness are able to keep them alive on the hunt for the source of this tragedy this is also a strong story but like pan's labyrinth regular labyrinth and a monster calls which nobody saw and which we think is brilliant both of these play out simultaneously both stories at the same time, the world of the established and accepted as real is laid on top of the world of unspeakable, uncanny and unknown, labelled as fantasy by those who avoid it. The source of the potency of this story is casting your mind back to when you were a kid. You were more vulnerable, more insignificant, had fewer contacts and support networks. The period setting puts it back behind the connectivity of the internet. You had no phone. You had few responsibilities. And life, for many of us, was somehow even harder. Nobody listens to you when you have something unusual to say, and often making and keeping friends was harder back then. This is especially effective if you've ever felt outcast, and this feeds off an even more primal anxiety. That we are unconnected, isolated, and alone, without a tribe, without purpose. To belong, to have friends, Loyal friends, true friends, the kind that forgive your indiscretions and mistakes, the kind that will fight for you, risk their lives for you, die for you. The scariest shit could be going on around, but for those of us that it matters to, having those friends, being part of that losers club, which is what happens to you when you are drawn in, that is worth the pain and the fear and the horror. This is the balance that has convinced those who think 
that this is not a horror movie. Horror is, by and large, the province of the isolated, the vulnerable, individual, the final girl. Even the parent protecting their helpless families is rendered alone in those kind of ghost and home invasion stories because there is usually a clear divide between vulnerable prey and responsible protector. It takes that dynamic and places all seven children in the role of protector and the children of Derry as their charges. When confronted by an evil this obscene, Bill and Beverly cannot rest until they have faced it and either eliminated it or lost their lives. It is this strength and determination that braces the other five back into the fight. It is that which compels us. And the kids themselves feel real and grounded too. They bicker and fight and swear and some of them are louder than others and all of them are different and none of this would work if they were annoying or bland or clearly had no idea what was really going on. You can see in their eyes that these actors get what they're doing. They've been properly prepared and as such, like the children of the book, they have had to grow up way too fast to accommodate these concepts and experiences. The fact that by the end, as the kids lay into Pennywise with improvised weapons all at once, and this thing cannot fix on a form, is perfect visual expression of this principle in action. While the twisted flute player might scarce stand because of his aversion to things not being in their right place and not making sense, it holds no specific impact for Mike. The leper is Eddie's demon for very specific reasons, since he has been taught by his fearful mother to flee from possible infection. That makes him a victim of her infectious fear. But Bill doesn't care about lepers. Bev's father is an all-powerful figurehead of doom for her, but Ben doesn't even know the man, and yet each of them is briefly menaced until they retaliate with the courage lent to them by their friends. Richie fears clowns most of all, and that's what he has to face for Bill, and the fact that he was just granted freedom clemency, even protection by this insidious creature, makes this decision all the more impactful. He could have walked, they all could. Alone we are vulnerable, together we can achieve so much more than what each in turn could do. It's like Caesar and his sticks. Bill and Beverly's obstacles to overcome are ramped up in the movie. Beyond those of the book, Bill has become fixated on finding Georgie. Bev is in constant danger of her father's advances. She needs to escape without feeling like she's running. She even says that in so many words. Even at this tender age, she knows that this is not how she wants to live. She can't run. Bill needs to let go to the point where this cruel monster forces him to kill his own little brother, thinking this will overwhelm him with fear, not suspecting how important a step this is in Bill moving on. The acceptance of death and the pursuit of a life where fear can be faced and overcome, these are why the children succeed. These are why we root for them. In a world of sadistic Henry Bowers and his embittered, abusive father and Eddie's hysterical, lying mother and Bill's emotionally atrophied parents and Beverly's twisted, vampiric father, it can be so easy to be overwhelmed by what feels like a blend of madness and evil. It forces us to stare into that Lovecraftian abyss and take the hand of those we love and step back from it and hold together with the people who can overcome their fears, those who won't turn a blind eye to suffering, those who will fight for those who cannot. I can think of nothing more appropriately themed for our age.
Also, Bill Skarsgård is scary as fuck. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> yes. Thank you. That's good laughter. Um, okay. Uh, shall we... Should we just kick off talking about Pennywise? Because it seems like that's what everyone like immediately launches into. But since I've, uh, you know, I weighted that one very heavily towards the kids, I suppose we could sort of drag it back because that's um, that that was what drew people in, and that was what people people found extraordinary, and um, people compared it to Heath Ledger's Joker. And I, I think honestly that Pennywise and Joker are both tapping into something that that we are all universally kind of fascinated by mm. even if you're sick to death of Joker being overused by DC or clowns being overused and they're certainly going to be overused now are we talking about chaos or clowns here or both uh, chaotic clowns Indeed. Yeah. I, I had um, I noticed somebody on my Facebook feed was talking about the the fear of clowns being considered sort of a universal thing and they were wondering why because they'd never had any particular feelings about clowns one way or the other um so a i don't know what mr mouse is on about <laughs> <laughs> but my my theory on this and i think i talked about it a bit when we did the mini series um is that clowns are um a, a lie a deliberate lie pointed at children and it's really confusing because kids already know that sometimes adults say one thing with words but their body language and their tone of voice is saying something completely different Mm. and that is scary because to be a small child with an adult who may be incredibly angry but you can't rely on your perception that they're incredibly angry or uh, a parent that may be really vulnerable and not need you to need anything from them but you can't tell that because they're not giving you that information it makes your world very uncertain and that's scary and a clown wears clothes and makeup and masks that deliberately conceals uh, body language or facial expression Um, sometimes it deliberately like twists facial expression so you've got a clown that goes around smiling but has a frowny face painted on or vice versa Um, or they look as though they're laughing but they have tears painted on Um, and quite often they will be either either not speaking at all or using horns and things that are supposed to be incredibly funny but that doesn't necessarily convey the tone of what's going on in their routines they're also by their nature and their job required to be erratic and erratic scares children absolutely because you could like a clown could be talking to you and then launch off into backflips or something and then start doing god knows what and you like a clown is not going to be a, a stable thing that sits beside you and chats with you and, and just has a one-to-one yeah. and those clowns that can 
well done, you're keeping it up for the team. <laughs> um, and, I mean, if you think about the ones in, is it Dumbo, where they have a, a routine going on where there's a house on fire and a baby that needs rescuing mm-hmm. from the house, and um, and yet they're all slapsticking it around mm-hmm. and being incredibly hilarious. So basically what I'm driving at here is that clowns are the embodiment of unpredictability, which to small children is in and of itself a scary thing. They could be laughing hard as hell when there's something really going badly wrong. Yeah. And now, that's again, this is why Joker is Exactly. Is now, as you get older, you you kind of start to process all of that and you put the pieces together and you understand why sometimes the voice and the words and the facial expression don't match and you start to grasp that sometimes you do that too. And if you are emotionally capable of taking it all apart and putting it back together again, it starts to make a little bit more sense. But sometimes people can't do that. And so the imagery still remains incredibly scary. There's a cultural thing as well on this, um, and it comes to the, down to the fact that uh, clowns fell out of favour a while back and never really got back into favour after the Joker became a huge deal and after um, it became a huge book. Um, they are now part of antiquity, they're part of history, they're, they shouldn't be here in, in, in to some degree, and especially they shouldn't be in a sewer. Mm. But um, th- th- there's, a, there's something really creepy about the fact that clowns have a context and a place to be and it's the circus or it's a kid's birthday party if they're anywhere else that's wrong and especially because people like clowns are scary and that's a thing now so there's it's almost like if you saw a victorian gentleman standing in a regular street you'd be creeped out because they're part of antiquity Mm. and possibly a vampire (laughs) yes yes or a steampunk (laughs) Okay, so you guys talk. I have yacked and yacked and yacked. I'm sorry. <laughs> say they finish this this cycle and say we get another movie and they complete it and it's, you know, it chapter two or whatever it's whatever it's gonna be called. Um, I I'm don't know what two. they could possibly do because you can't have clowns. Clowns were still a little bit a figure of fun and enjoyment for at least some kids in the eighties. But no time after the 80s, you can't, there's no possibility of doing, you know, there would be no possibility of doing uh, one where, say, since, you know, in this one, they time displace it from, you know, it was the 50s to the 80s. Mm. And it was in the, in the, in the miniseries in the book, it was the 50s for the kids and the 80s for the adults. And now this one, it's the 80s for the kids and the, you know, 20 teens before the adults. But if they were to update that again, you can't use the clown period because clowns aren't anything but scary. Do you mean um, doing another cycle after this so that once they've finished this story, they come back and do another? No, like after? even in yes. two as well. Like if the well, clowns in in yeah. like if they come back in 2016, that clown. Uh, we said this when we did our, our last show. Like kids going along playing on their iPads, uh, well, their iPods when they're walking away, uh, around, and then a clown's like, "Hey, kid, you want to come to the sewer?" And like, nope, gonna carry on yeah. playing with my Five Nights at Freddy's. Okay, yeah. what if I come at you as a Five Nights at Freddy? Then they might be scared. Will, will he not just dress as Heath Ledger's Joker? <sighs> yeah. Well, we legitimately had scary clowns clowns in 2016 people yeah. dressing up like scary clowns yeah so maybe they lean into that and pennywise is supposed <laughs> to be a figure of fear to people in small in this small town it's going to be and very it, difficult because that they, they like if they make it topical 
then it, it dates. dressed as scary clowns. You have no idea who is Pennywise. But, okay, there, there's <laughs> another cultural uh, anchor point on this one. Everybody name a clown. You ask anyone on the street, and they will go, uh, Ronald McDonald? Another one. Uh, Joker? <laughs> no, they won't. Most of them won't say Bozo. Some of them will, might say Krusty. So, yeah, Krusty is a wreck of a man, a reprobate, a terrible person. And yeah. that's not a good image for a clown. What else you got? John Wayne Gacy, some might say. What else you got? Uh, um, Pennywise would actually be now probably the people who go, name a clown. Uh, the one from It. What was it? Pennywise. Yeah, yeah that one. And, so they have to create a 2016 where yeah. It never existed. And so the people will be gasping, like, the top ten memorable clowns, none of them will be nice apart from Ronald. And, uh, like, you'll even get, like, the clown toy out of Poltergeist, the original not the remake which by the way the remake is a really great example of how like you're going clown 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 for the marketing does not get people in and is not a quality movie yes mm, yeah I, I have seen a couple of people speculating on the idea that they're going to continue and make more it stories to which i just kind of sat there and went no this is this is a self-contained thing. I mean, oh, mind you, having said that, there were people who were talking about them doing more um, Harry Potter and more Hunger after Games. Harry Potter and more Hunger Games, and it, it just <sighs> Hunger Games was a closed story. Mm. I'm, I'm glad yeah. they're not even talking about that. Though, you know, t- ten, twenty years might come back. Um, I do another Halloween. The... Well, that's kind of a reboot slash remake slash. They're basically Star Wars The Force Awakening zing Halloween, it seems like, because, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back, and I don't even know what to think about that. Yeah. See, all I can think about that is Jamie Lee Curtis has a tax bill. She cut his fucking head off! I can't think of any reason. That's even if we ignore what happened in that that shitty... I could be wrong. It could be that somebody has come up with something else really, really important that needed to be said about Michael Myers. Mm. Okay, Other than by this point, he's died of old We're getting age. somewhat off the point here. We are. Yeah. Okay, yes, back to it. Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård, yes. <laughs> One of the things that just immediately got me and made me shiver uh, was, uh, and I, I think this was actually from a note in the book, uh, when he speaks, occasionally you'll hear a little tiny jingle of bells, but it sounds, uh, it's it's not like a it's just a like at one point but that sounds like it's it's a it's a wrong use of a bell mm. so uh, it struck me when he uh, said i am pennywise the dancing clown and it hits with when with the, uh, the word dance oh. hi ho georgie what a nice bow do you want it back um yes please you look like a nice boy Do you want a balloon too, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? I should get going now. Oh. Without your boat? His entire performance feels like, like he's wearing an ill-fitting human suit. Yes. Um, that, and, you know, you get bits of it where, you'll, like, after Beverly stabs him in the face or where he has the werewolf hand and, and it starts to feel like the mask is slipping off. Yeah. But 
even when he's just playing Pennywise, like the very first scene in, when, when he's in the storm drain, one of the things that really struck me is he's he's drooling while he's talking to Georgie, and he literally at one point has to remind himself to stop drooling at his food and talk to him to continue to lure him down. He's like, oh, you're not leaving without your boat. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, that's right. I, I have to I have to person. I, I think that really fits into one of the things that Sharon was talking about in why clowns can be so terrifying is because, I mean, as humans, we're taught to imprint and recognize faces. Clowns have intentionally obscured faces. And so as children, we're not exactly sure how to process that. And that just kind of sticks in the back of our mind. And Pennywise just takes that and turns that shit right up to 11. Mm. And there's a there's a small because um, one of the things that I was trying to pick up on was was little details from the book um, that were not exactly hidden but done in a in a subtle unannounced way and there's lots of them um, but the the first one of the first ones I noticed was uh, the the eyes Pennywise when uh, Georgie first sees him he has blue eyes and in the book it specifies they're the same colour as Bill's that's why Georgie trusts him mm. by the end of that scene they've turned orange ah. yeah they go they're, they're blue they flash silver occasionally hinting at the uh, deadlights and then uh, they go sort of a yellowish orange uh, and if you look at the actually the, the process of what he does to Georgie during that scene sadistic though it may be it is literally calculated as the best possible way to frighten him on terms that Georgie can first off understand and then can't understand. It's sickening to watch. The, the audience that I was watching it with was mesmerized. And you know when you get that like restless horror audience that um, like when someone makes a noise during a quiet bit, everyone sniggers. There was like none of that. I, I watched Mama yeah. the other day, and sorry, I, I watched Mother the other day. And during the uh, the last uh, the, the third act, most of the audience had mentally checked out and were just in that well, "What the fuck is this about?" Uh, mindset, which is understandable. And then someone started like it was the screen had gone like very quiet, and someone went, and then everyone laughed <laughs> because it was a way to relieve the tension. That never happened in it. It was very, um, it, it grabbed you. And it held you. And I think I've seen people like talking about how, you know, it's, 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 you know, why are we so obsessed with watching a clown kill children? And I'm sure as hell not going like from, from our perspective, like you, you, like when you read the book, your humanity immediately swells up at that point and you want these terrible things to stop. You're not reading with grim fascination because like you're like watching someone tear the legs off a pig. I wonder if that's what people mean when they say it's not a horror film, because a, a horror film, you go to see it and you and what the trope has become that's a slasher film i know what you're gonna say yeah is you're watching horrible teenagers getting killed no that's a slasher that's a sub-genre of horror at least that's the 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 tropes of it but Mm. uh, we're not fascinated with a clown being uh killing children we're fascinated with children overcoming a killer clown bingo absolutely which to me is the definition of a really 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 good horror film in fact i think the thing i said to you when you said that people were saying it wasn't a horror film was it's not a horror film it's the horror film (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, I believe Alex said something about it seems like uh, something in an ill-fitting human suit. Oh, that's... Uh, who was that? Or, Brendan, I well, it was Brendan. 
Okay. Okay. Well, that that statement it it recalls something I saw on one of a review I watched of the movie after we saw it, commenting that it feels throughout the movie like Pennywise is being marionetted by something. Mm. Yes, which mm. feels like a puppet. Yeah, especially and, and when it, he does the dancing bit at the very end, which yeah. is one of the most yeah mm-hmm. oddly visually horrifying things and he really does just look like a puppet did anyone else notice those big swirling orange like tentacly looking things behind him there they just look like clouds in a background but i think you were getting a little bit of a glimpse onto the the thing behind pennywise Ah, there i missed that watch that closely next time i could be wrong but uh, it was much bigger than just pennywise there Mm, yeah i i know i i think i know exactly what you mean though debbie the the image i kept getting was not so much of a marionette one that's on strings but do you remember those old no 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 do you remember those old puppets that they use for um uh like she's gesturing with her hands i I don't know how to explain right kind of but no not a hand puppet like a puppet that has wooden limbs that are tied together with string at the joints mm-hmm. and then there's a big stick stuck to its <clears> back and you can almost like a like a shadow screen puppet oh move okay them along yeah. the stage with sticks sh- rather than with a crossbar yeah, holding strings exactly with right. a stick yeah. that goes out behind them rather right. than something that's controlling mm-hmm. them so, so it's so uh, like a tentacle yeah. can sit behind the curtain yeah. poke pennywise out through the curtain and just wiggle him around on the end of this <laughs> pay stick. no attention to the Lovecraftian beast behind the curtain. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> oh, which is God. really fun, given that Pennywise literally has a Georgie puppet at during during the bit in the in the sewer, not the yeah. sewer, uh, the, the um, cellar, the, the yeah. cellar, mm-hmm. and Bill sees Georgie, and Pennywise literally has his hand up the the Georgie flesh creation, yeah. like he's puppeting something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I saw that, that bit in the trailer annoyed me because I was like, you'll float too, you'll float too, you'll float too. And then there's the pause and then, ah, and he runs it. It's like, yes, that's every ghost movie now. Mm-hmm. But watching it, the point of that scene is not, ooh, I scared you. It's obvious the scare is coming. It's the how wrong it feels, how much of a violation mm-hmm. of Bill and Bill's love for Georgie that feels. Mm-hmm. And when it, that, that scene accomplishes so much, because when Bill runs and Pennywise doesn't quite get him, he like slams his head down on the uh, lower basement step and looks up at him in a kind of, ah, what have we got here? I can torment the living fuck out of this guy. His Quest- weakness is Georgie, and that's what it realizes. Question. With regards to the casting of Pennywise, and I think pretty much everybody is in agreement that ultimately Bill Skarsgård did an excellent job. Oh, he was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But one thing that kind of made me wonder mm-hmm. when they first started the marketing was how young he is. Mm. He's not far off Henry Bowers. And that seemed strange. Just in the sense that I, I don't know whether it's because uh, visually Pennywise has always been um, Tim Curry, mm-hmm. because that's the only screen representation of him I've seen. Mm. But even when I read the book, I always envisioned Pennywise as being somebody much, much older. Interestingly, um, Mark Rylance, the guy who played the wonderful, lovely, lovable BFG, was in the running and decided to be on BFG instead. And and, uh, um, uh, Dunkirk, he was the guy who was like, we're at war, son. And, you know, uh, I would have found that, again, it would have been felt really wrong for someone that I, I hadn't I've, like I hadn't ever seen Mark Rylance do anything before the BFG, but I definitely wouldn't 
have felt the same level of aversion, like natural aversion to Pennywise, had it been someone established, had it been a Jack Nicholson, mm. you know? Yeah. If it, like, the fact, like, Heath Ledger was definitely not an unknown, but the fact that he was relatively young allowed you to sort of accept that what you were seeing on screen was the Joker, and... It definitely helped this film that they had $35 million and they didn't spend much of that on stars. And people have been doing their sort of like star casting for um, volume two. And it's like, okay, you guys might not understand this, but if you make this a hundred million, a hundred and fifty million dollar horror and you just up the budget and hope to make, you know, eight times what you made uh, originally just to cover that... It's not going to make as much because the 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 the, mo- the mechanism of it is not going to work in no. the same way. Well, Suddenly, you got Chiwetel Ejiofor in playing Mike, and it's it, it doesn't work in the same way. No, well, apart from anything else, if the budget suddenly shoots up, they will not be allowed to make it the way they want to make it. Mm. There will suddenly mm-hmm. be money men watching over their oh, shoulder going, so we foolish. can't possibly do that because we need this to make more than the other one. The did. studio really need to trust them right now. In which case they need to keep the budget relatively low. Stay and I, I do agree with you. The only thing I would say, however, is getting unknowns mm. of that age is going to be because if you haven't been known in some capacity yeah. who, what the hell are you doing you, you're 40 you're a really good actor but nobody's picked you up yet mm. what's wrong <laughs> it's probably better to get people who have been lesser known mm. or haven't been doing a lot on screen for a while uh, for example and this is just my stupid stunt, ca- stunt casting here but I'd like to get Seth Green for Richie Tozier as an adult. And <laughs> instead of many people have and said instead that. of making Yeah. And <laughs> instead of making him like a stand up comic or a DJ, make him run his own television show. Make him a podcaster. <laughs> make him run his own stop motion animated television show <laughs> why not <laughs> you're listening to beep beep with richie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i do think they i do think they need character actors like i i wouldn't go with anyone more known than like say patrick wilson as bill denbro seems mm. like about that's about as big as you want to go and i would only really hope that they use bigger names for like Bill and Beverly, because they're the charismatic centers that the losers kind of rally behind several times. And so Patrick Wilson, Wilson or for example, right. I'm going to, I'm going to say I would really rather not Patrick Wilson, although you're absolutely uh, at liberty to, to wish it was Patrick Wilson for two reasons. One, three reasons. He was, he was massive in insidious and he was massive in the conjuring. Um, yeah, that's so, fair. So you're already yeah. going to have this. This is what Patrick Wilson does in horror films. Like, he will drop into that mode, like, un- un- unavoidably. And the other, rather more important one, is he always reminds me of Joe Bluth. Yeah, I was just about to say, <laughs> <laughs> might as well get Will on it. <laughs> <laughs> he just, the, the way he looked as Night Owl is kind of like how I've always pictured Bill, though. So that's just <laughs> hey, I mean, the, the balding guy with the pot belly. I mean, that's just yeah. kind of you know. No secret but, rat tail. <laughs> <laughs> the secret rat tail can can stay buried. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, anyone else with uh, with other um, casting? One, one thing I particularly liked about um, Pennywise his design is um, there's so when clowns do their makeup, mm-hmm. there's a term in the industry. It's called a broken asshole. 
And the idea is that you put, you make one lip bigger, either the top lip or the bottom lip, but not both, because otherwise it looks like a gaping wound. Um, with Pennywise, it's his bottom lip that's big until he opens his mouth, at which point it becomes a gaping wound. His top lip gets bigger and more makeuped yeah, when he opens his mouth. I see that. It, it's a kind of cute little thing that I think makes it kind of interesting just from a clown makeup perspective. There's a clown makeup perspective. <laughs> Folks, I can uh, assure you, do not Google images broken asshole. <laughs> yeah, no, no, God, don't do that. <laughs> well, there's a lot of cool things that they did with the makeup. Like, they, they really contoured it to um, Skarsgård's musculature and his face mm. so that when he moves his face, the makeup is going to distort as much as possible. Mm. Um, and even even things like he's got reverse tears as opposed to having the tears that go down. Like, his, his makeup tears go up, they float. Uh, there's just... Ah. There's, there's a lot of cool things that, that they did with the makeup. I was... I mean, even down to he does look super young, especially out of the makeup. But even with that, um, just the fact that there's a slight sense of innocence that's being distorted by the monster makes him feel even more wrong. Like, like as a whole, I think I would put Pennywise up there in terms of movie monsters with Kruger and the alien. I think he's we, we've got a lot of, you know, popularity right now. But I think over time he's going to prove to be a horror icon that lasts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah I agree with that I I um I think Kruger and Jason and uh, um Michael, Michael Myers, Myers persisted in their uh, horror movies and so they've sort of like earned their um notoriety with just through sheer repetition through sheer repetition else. I really hope that's not how Pennywise does it but it's almost impossible for the horror genre to leave something like that alone they just got to keep picking at it mm. until it's it's ruined. Like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street was eventually ruined. Halloween is, uh, at the moment, un until Jamie Lee Curtis comes back, has been ruined. Friday the 13th, 13th was ruined very quickly. Ruined. <laughs> yeah. Like, they don't know when to leave it the fuck alone. Like, when they finally get it right, that starts the cycle again, and they keep going till it's ruined. Like, even more yeah. than the action and sci-fi, uh, um, like, genres and subgenres. Mm. if we are going to be that reductive with this. But then you say the, that, does that labels. tie in with the idea of this cyclical horror? Because um, one thing... No, it ties in with the fact that studios know that horror pe people mm. who love horror movies love the same thing again and again and again. Okay, yeah. I'm Having speaking a metaphorically here. <laughs> Go with oh. me on this for a minute. Oh, no, seriously, I, I, I agree. I think there will be an origins and I think it will be a mistake continue Shelley. Um, what I was going to say was the uh, one of the things that's again a, a part of the book and I think they only touch on it very briefly in the film um, Ben points out that the death rate in Derry is something like six times the national average and mm -hmm. it's even worse for children mm -hmm. um, the implication in the book is that the the cycle is continuous. It's just that it peaks every 27 years. Mm. There are constantly kids going missing and dying and, mm. um, and, and bad things happening in Derry. Um, it's just that it's only when it, it gets really bad that people kind of have to pay attention. Um, and I'm just thinking about this, this when the movie industry gets a horror 
trope <laughs> character situation that works and this isn't even just within the same franchise this is you know they they copy it they do it over and over again until it ceases to have the impact not just the same within the same franchise paranormal activity sparked a exactly, whole bunch of yeah. that kind of ghost that's film. my point and and that they there is this cycle going on and then they somebody comes up with something that suddenly has a massive impact mm. and the cycle peaks and then they do it again and again and again and again and again until it but it, it always like they're not going to repeat the um, the length of time this takes to really establish character. They're not going to repeat the fact that the no, kids are really not. great. They're going to go the clown. The clown's the thing the clown's that'll the catch king. the conscience That's of the why king. Why it was scary because of the clown. Uh, mm. Or like the clown's a thing, but it's just a puppet. Oh, sorry. Sideline on the whole puppet thing. His eyes keep going like weird, like, like not exactly crossed, unfocused. like unfocused. And one of them creeps up to the other direction. Mm. That lends credence to the idea that this thing is not only a puppet. Those aren't even really eyes. No. They just look like They're eyes. Beads. And and it it kind of that thing of of when it gets hungry and it starts slavering, its concentration starts to lapse. Mm. And and the, this whatever it is that allows it to maintain a vaguely human shape starts to slip, mm. which again is scary. The mask is coming off, and you maybe get just a hint at what might lie behind mm. it. But Georgie has no comprehension of that, so yeah. we don't really see anything of that in that scene. Okay, um, new topic tangentially linked: differences from the book that were significant, or like things you felt were absent, or things that they added. Uh, by the way, Brendan, you have hardly talked. <laughs> oh well, I have a really, really, really big thing specifically for the for the this part. Um, All right. The um, uh, the way that Pennywise handles the way he scares the kids, and the way the film plays up the aspects of belief that both go hand in hand with Pennywise's forms and how they mess with the kids is very different from the book um in the book of course you've got like you know they're they're playing off of the universal monsters the kids were watching in the 50s you know the gill man werewolf um from you know the teenage werewolf um you know stuff like frankenstein's monster kills one of the bowers gang and these are all things that the kids would have been scared of in the 1950s um they decided to update that for this of course and my immediate thought was well Maybe they'll do Freddy Krueger or something because kids were scared of Freddy Krueger in the eighties. And yeah, we said this last time. We said, "Why doesn't the alien turn up?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were actually thinking of doing Freddy Krueger. Um, that was like an idea that did get kicked around, according to the director. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what I think they do instead um, with the movie is much much better. Uh, everything that Pennywise does to these children and everything that happens to these children is all about like chipping away at beliefs that children need and that make them feel safe. Like Bill is not able to protect his brother and then his parents will not help him. And then his home is violated when Pennywise is in his cellar. Yeah. Um, Beverly's so father is gone. Exactly. Beverly's father becomes a predator. Like he's, he's not there to, to help her. She has to, to be able to fear him. And then when he doesn't believe her, uh, like about the blood, like she loses, like she starts to doubt her own sanity. Stan Uris is literally attacked in a temple. Like that's his, there's no holy ground mm. that it, that makes you safe. And so like all of these things, you know, um, Oh, even, side note, even, by the way, on Bev, um, the, I don't believe she has a lock on her bedroom door, but the bathroom, she goes there straight away to read the postcard because it feels 
safe. That's her, like her sanctuary. She's gone in there before to escape being badgered and worse. And it's got a lock on the door, so it's got that sense of like maybe in here I'm safe and so that sanctuary gets violated and her very act of defiance and redefining herself of cutting off her hair comes back and strangles the shit out of her mm. I want to go exactly. into that later when we come to talk about Bev because they've brought something very specific for her into this which is not emphasised in the book but mm. I think worked incredibly well for Brilliant. her character also you want to talk yes. about blood in the bathroom for a girl of that age so <laughs> that's yeah. where I was going to yeah. go okay, cool. sorry I didn't want exactly. to take that but yeah <laughs> At least, yeah. um, but to but to keep going, like with the other kids, like um, Eddie's, like, and this is something that he did have in the book. You know, Eddie's finding out about his mother lying to him about his illness. Like, you know, our our parents are kind of like our first models for God, and so mm-hmm. you know, his mother's lying to him. You know, and and so all of these kids, like, they lose everything possible to believe in except for each other. And I think that actually makes the finale. Like, I have one particular issue about what they do with the finale in Beverly's character, which I'm sure we'll get to. But overall, the way that they reinforce the kids believing in each other and how all of them literally working together physically as a group, as opposed to kind of being split off and sort of surreal in the book, I think that makes it far stronger in terms of the ending and what they do with Pennywise in the sewers in the movie than mm-hmm. what you get in the book. Mm. Uh, one I'm Sharon, you go, please. No, 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 go on, Kara. Um, I just wanted to jump off of that. One of the things that I loved about this film so much was the economy of storytelling in the sense that they used these scare moments to develop the characters. Um, I I haven't read the book, but I've heard quite a bit about it since Debbie literally just finished a couple hours ago. (laughs) Um, And I've seen the miniseries a couple of times. And, you know, it's... As scary as, I guess, Michael Landon in uh, werewolf makeup can be to a kid that age, um, <laughs> ultimately, it's still kids are afraid of monsters, duh. That's not – and I guess and Debbie said that there's more, more to it in the book. But ultimately, it's kids are afraid of monsters, whereas here, all of the scares are used to develop these kids. Mm. What are they deeply afraid of? Mike is deeply afraid of burning alive. That is so much more powerful than any uh, than Rodan is, to be honest. The also developing the idea of um, the fears being about chipping away at beliefs. Um, the one of the the points of why Pennywise goes after children, or why it goes after children, <laughs> is because children are easy to scare because their fears are simple. They can be summed up in a, a single image. Um, and the the difficulty with adults is that their fears are more complex. Now these children are kind of at the doorway of adulthood and as a result their fears are starting to become more complex and I think part of the reason why um, Bill and Beverly are much more focused on characters and much more complex characters than the others in in the way that they're presented is because their fears are already starting to become way more complex than the others Um, but the the idea that what they're 
what they, they're afraid of is, like you say, Mike's afraid of burning to death, but beyond that, he is afraid that he is responsible mm. for his parents burning mm -hmm. to death because they came back to get him. Uh, Eddie is afraid of infection, but he is also afraid that there is nothing he can do to protect against infection, particularly once he finds out that the medicine is placebos and isn't going to achieve anything. Um, so it's, it's the process of those fears starting to become more complicated that makes... I think their uh, their role so powerful in drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know what, we're not going to wait for you to manipulate these incredibly um, complex fears for us. We're going to turn them back on you. Excuse me, Sharon. I think you mean gazebos. Gazebos. <laughs> <laughs> Gesundheit. <laughs> Sorry, that line killed in the theater. Mm. Like that. Mm -hmm. That was. I, I honestly, just to do a, a quick uh, aside, I think one of the reasons people are saying this doesn't feel like a horror movie is because it's scary, but because of the comedy and the, the kind of heroic moments, it feels like a Marvel film that's got like really nasty monsters in it. Like it, it plays like an MCU film. So I suppose the closest one it would be, would be Doctor Strange. Yeah. Just like a bit, like two seconds into Doctor Strange, you go beheading, unnecessary beheading. It's yeah. directed by a horror movie director. There is tangential links. Mm. Yeah, it's but yeah, there's definitely an '80s coming of age movie embedded in this horror movie mm. that you can't help but like and be excited about whenever those parts come up. I, or at least I was. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that the the, the not exactly the turning point. I loved it from very, very early in. But the point for me at which it suddenly became something magical was actually the point where it stopped being scary. Mm -hmm. When yeah. was that? Can you pinpoint it? Um, it's, I can tell you exactly when it is. It's when they are in the house on Neibolt Street. And um, Pennywise has spent half of his bag of tricks mm -hmm. um, and scared the shit out of them. And basically, my my horror movie reaction had intensified and intensified and intensified to that point. Mm -hmm. um, and it peaked. And then I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was it was kind of just after uh, Richie and Bill had come to find Eddie. Mm -hmm. So again, it's that moment where they're like, no, we're not going to allow you to separate us anymore. We are together on this. And he comes out and screams or, or something or tries to hit them with something terrifying. Yeah. And something in me just snapped. And I was still... I, I could still feel the fear working its way around my brain, but something else went... So that's all you have. Fine. I, I'm terrified. <clears throat> I can live with that. I'm not dead yet. So you're done because you've got nothing else. Because at that point, uh, when it counted, they were together. And immediately after that, boom, Bev comes in. Fucking exactly. red, like fence spike through the head. Yeah. And the fact that his reaction there is to go, ah, like show his horrible thing style face mm. and then retreat backwards into the basement in a kind of, I'll get you next time. And it's like, no, he's retreating. What does that mean? Read the actions here. Mm. He's fucking scared. Yeah. And the fact that the last thing he says, just as uh, um, Bill's about to stove his head in with a pipe is, Fear. And then he just like, lets himself fall and, and collapses. He's feeling fear and he's recognizing that in himself. And his head caves in simply because Bill is prepared to smash his head in. Mm. It's the um, 
just the, the the faith they place in each other is so much more powerful. Absolutely. And also the fact that he has, um, he is, this I think is replicating something that again turns up in the book when Beverly lashes out at her father for the first time. <clears throat> there's something that says, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's that the first expression across his face is not anger, but surprise. Just the idea of how dare you fight back and that's what i got from pennywise at that point it's how what the hell it's the the uh, that was the last thing he expected the fact that they do dare to fight back that deals a bigger blow than the pipe <coughs> yeah who do you think you are i'm immortal yeah mm. i am immortal child yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have a little bit of a, it's not a tangent, but it may take us in a little bit different direction. So if you, if you're on this specific thing, Brendan, go ahead. Yeah. Well, um, just, just in terms of the way they, they deal with this. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about the way they handled Nebel street in the end is, uh, um, they, they turn kind of the, the, the fight against Pennywise. It's almost like the apocalyptic rock fight with bigger stakes right down to the point where there's, you know, they, they do this in the book as well of, of having Henry Bowers. He's just completely shocked that this happened. And they have like a big couple big slow motion moments of the bullies in the movie as well. Being like, what is happening? What is this? You're, you're not this isn't the, the rules do not allow this. Mm. And Pennywise, I think, mirrors that particular shock. And wait a minute. That's not what's supposed to happen very, very well. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Although that does kind of beg the question, if he's been doing this to Derry for however many hundreds of years and however many thousands of years before it became Derry before that, nobody's ever tried to have a go? Ah, they have, and that <laughs> is what our many, many prequels will be about. Yes. Well, they needed seven and they needed a turtle, so I guess we just never quite got there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or is it, is it that the uh, Native Americans had a ritual specifically to get rid of him over and over oh, the and ritual over of Chud? again? I think so. <laughs> and it's only since it all started becoming, you know, 17th century woodcuts that you guys have fucked it all up mm. by letting uh, people be scared and not talk about these things. Uh, white people ruin everything. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Do you guys want... I'm not entirely sure we actually went into it in detail. What's the ritual of Chud? Debbie, you've just read it. <laughs> um, it And I, I don't recall exactly, being that that was... Being that that was three, four hundred pages ago. I don't recall exactly yeah. which, because <laughs> this book's only 1,100 pages long. Oh. <laughs> um, um, the, it, it's it's basically you grab the thing by its tongue, you let it grab you by your tongue, and then you tell it riddles. Yes. And the first one to laugh and fall off loses. Yep. Yes. Yes. And it, it's interesting, that, and this this is this is following right from something that was just said, and I, I want to I want to mention this um, is, is the fact that what the biggest the most base thing I took away from both the book and this movie is the fact that I think that what this is really about at its at its heart is, is this is about systemic abuse hmm. that the the core of what defeats it is community. So much of this is the fact that the parents don't see this. The parents can't see the blood. They can't see they they can't see Pennywise a lot of the time. Those sorts of things and the fact that I think 
so much of the time when ki- with kids, number one, especially back in the, the 50s and the 80s to a somewhat lesser degree, you know, these things happened in communities and you didn't talk about them. Mm, yeah, it's it's the they can't see because they don't want to see. And part of what allows it to keep going is the the pact of silence. The fact that you and as you say, Debbie, with systemic abuse, that's what allows it to continue is this nobody talks about it. This is that yeah. second uh, story I was talking about. The, the first one's definitely supernatural. The second one's mm. definitely rooted in the real. Yeah. But they may as well have been tracking down a child predator at that point. Yeah. An unrepentant, yeah. hate-filled child predator. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Freddy Krueger. Yeah. 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 And the, the fact that the fact that from a child's perspective, number one, a lot of times in those situations, you know, parents aren't doing anything because you're not supposed to talk about it. Number mm-hmm. two... Parents sometimes, you know, good parents try to do things and, you know, they may have done everything they can and they don't have the power to affect change in some situations, especially when it's kids seeing things happen to their friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the kids may perceive it as being the parents aren't doing anything and are oblivious. And when the real the real point is the parents may be to a certain degree powerless and I, I found that very profound. I, th- I thought this to me was like, oh, this is how it must feel as a child. Mm, yeah. And possibly on some level, one of the reasons that the parents choose not to see is because if they see, they will have to admit that they can't do anything, which will put them back in the position of powerless children. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yes. And certainly that they didn't do anything when they could have seen. Yeah. This is why it's very, very, very difficult to get people to face facts when the harmony of their life is entirely dependent on them not facing up to those terrible facts. Ooh, I just had a thought. How many many of those adults in Derry saw Pennywise or something similar when they were kids and grew up and pretended it never happened? Well, according to the book, there's a lot of people who have seen Pennywise that, you know, Mike has several interludes where he's like talking to people and, you know, they'll talk about, oh, wait, yeah, I guess during that one thing that was awful, like maybe I guess I did see a clown. I just, just kind of never really thought about it. And they just kind of, you know, plaster over it. That mm. That is actually, I think, one of the other things that I think that it is about is kind of a dressing down of nostalgia because, it takes place in the 50s, and one of the big things that people have nostalgia for in the 50s is like, oh, it was this, you know, happy time in America and family and white picket fences. And it, the book, is very much about, well, you think it's happy because mm-hmm. you literally forgot every terrible thing that happened. Yeah. There was the racism, the homophobia. Shit going on back then that you yeah. just would do well to think about and that's why i love that they moved it forward to the 80s because we have the same thing about the 80s as it was maury in america and ronald reagan and transformers cartoons and no things were pretty bad then too the aids epidemic was a thing the 80s were horrendous (laughs) (laughs) there were there were evil killer clowns in the 80s man it wasn't cool (laughs) american psycho
Just going to take a break here for a public service announcement. School of Movies has two additional podcast feeds, School of Movies Archives and School of Everything Else Archives. If you can't find a show you're looking for on the main School of Movies feed, go check out these. They're available on iTunes, free to anybody, and there are hundreds and hundreds of episodes on there in chronological release order. The absolute cream of the crop are on our main School of Movies feed, but if you want to dig deeper, go to School of Movies Archives. Okay, uh, so um, yeah, we're still on the uh, point of different. The way that it was different from the book. Were there other things that were missing, or other things that were added, or things that they had changed, or um, like blended together that you, that you found particularly impressive? Or speaking lacking? as somebody who had a long, deep, and persistent love affair with that book, hmm. um, I can honestly say there is nothing they left out that I thought the film suffered for. Hmm. We already um, talked about that controversial scene so much in the last episode. No yeah, interest yeah. in talking about it again. <laughs> yeah. They did the right thing. Yes. Let's just say wasn't going to happen. It's all yeah. like summed up in the fact that, that um, they, they hold each other at the end and that that's, that's all do you fine. Need. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I, I don't think anything was left out that, that could have done with being in, um, with the possible exception of some of the uh, character focus, which we've already touched on and we'll go into when we talk about <clears throat> the characters. Um, and I don't think there's anything I can think of that they brought in that I didn't want, that I saw and thought, oh, well, what did you do that for? I... I'm not a huge fan of giving some of Mike's um, characteristics to Ben, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's I, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, Ben being in the library, like was, was a thing already. So that feels kind of a natural extension. I kind of wish that we'd had some more stuff in the Barons, like them going on the, on the vision quest, you know, the, the hot box, try and figure out some of that. There are some things that I, I liked about the surreal beliefs that the kids are forced to put so much stock in in the novel that they're trying to still recapture as adults in the mm. in, in the later period. And the question is, can you still have that kind of childish belief? Um, but on the other hand, you know, can you still believe in these friends that you haven't seen in 30 years? Mm. Feels feels like a, a comparable thing. Um, I'm really glad that Patrick Hockstetter was a little bit different in mm -hmm. the movie. Um, oh, agreed. <laughs> I, I did. I did not need to see the things that Patrick Hoxtetter did no, in the book. In I the did movie. not need to see the things that got Patrick Hoxtetter either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I needed to hear that happen to him in the book because that particular sequence with what happens to his brother deeply upset me. Like in. Mm in an incredibly unnerving way. Like I spent like a couple minutes just listening to Mary and breathe in the crib. I was like, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and then I kept listening until he got eaten. I was like, good, good. Do it again. Um, <laughs> but, but in the, in the movie, I thought that was, that was perfectly great. Um, zombies eating him worked really well. That was, that was fine. Yeah. I think also they, they kind of, uh, transmuted it a little bit in the sense that he is obviously a bully. Um, these are obviously not the first kids he's bullied. Mm. It's entirely possible that several of the children who've been got by Pennywise already, he bullied them. So the fact that they got to get him back, I think you did get that slight sense of um, there being something karmic about that. Mm. Oh yeah, you found us, Patrick. 
Mm-hmm. That was nice. Like, come play with us, Patrick. For <laughs> I I definitely it's it's a really minor thing, and you could call it a nitpick. Um, I did dislike a little bit what they do with Eddie's mother in the new movie mm-hmm. versus how she's portrayed in the book, mm-hmm. because I I felt like oddly enough in a movie that had such good characters. <clears throat> I felt like the mother, Eddie's mother in this movie had less nuance than she did in the book. Mm-hmm. She's still, she's still definitely not a good character, but you get, you get a little bit of a sense of why she does what she does in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and you have, there is a small amount of sympathy you have for her. Whereas in the movie, she was just awful. A monster. Mm. Yes. Uh, yes. It, it's uh, also it. It's a little bit uncomfortable with the, the fact that they uh, were also like accentuating her large body to go look at this enormous monster. Yeah. This, this slothful pig just sitting watching TV and that fucking TV show, by the way. She's a huge hog beast. But when she's really fucking horrible to Bev. In particular, when she's um, like she, she's shouting at the kids, you're like, okay, you can understand this uh, a mother being, um, uh, you know, like freaked out because her child um, uh, like had snapped his fucking arm. I would be that furious as well. But she t- rails on Bev in the really, you know, genuinely horrible way, which makes positions her as a massive obstacle mm. for. Eddie to overcome. I, I think what yeah. I quite liked about the way, and this this is primarily to do with the way she was performed, actually. Um, so kudos to the actress, but she came across to me um, like Annie from uh, Misery, mm. somebody yeah. who is mm. um, who has incredibly unpleasant thoughts and is very. Um, self-centered and wicked and cruel and um, will lash out with whatever she has but at the same time has this ridiculous mealy-mouthed way of looking at at swearing or Mm. um, rude behavior or anything that is no more of that language mr man impulsively (laughs) natural i'm gonna break your legs for that (laughs) indeed (laughs) what really came across um to me with her is that she really emphasized this whole fakeness Mm. um and and obviously a big part of that is the the pushing the placebos onto her son you know medication that she knows perfectly well achieves nothing but allows her to maintain this hold over him um, but this idea that she is um, she is pretending to be clean and caring and and as perfect as she can possibly be, but in actual fact she thinks viciously. In the uh, 1990 miniseries, Eddie, as an adult, was still living with his mother, wasn't he? Mm. And you said mm-hmm. that that's, that's not, not the, the case, case in the book. In the book, in the book he, his mother has died, right. and he has, um, but he lived with her right up until his, yeah. until her death, um, and then, oh no, hang on a minute, no, he didn't. No, he did leave before she died. Right. But um, he married a woman who was basically very, very similar to his mother. So they're doing the whole Bev thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's that's part of the point. The idea behind that in the book is that no matter how much they think they've got away, they haven't got away. They've taken all of this with them. Mm. Bill marries somebody who looks like Bev. Mm. Um, it, it, It sticks to many of them. I, I like On the one hand... I actually like the idea that uh, Eddie still ends up living with his mother, that she's one of the the, the, the kind of women who goes, oh, no, you can't leave me. I, I'm, I had to have surgery, plastic surgery. It's still the same kind of thing, surgery. 
Um, and, you know, like someone who, we, we know some people who have had mothers who just won't unclench and just let those claws away. And that's, at the same time, I don't want Eddie to have to grow up with that. Like, that's a de- genuinely unhappy life, especially considering what happens to Eddie in the end. Eddie actually became one of my favorite characters. It could have been his delivery when he was arguing with Richie. He was like, hey, where's the poison ivy? Nowhere. Okay, well, I'm starting to get itchy, and I'm pretty sure this is not Do you use the night. same bathroom as your mother? Sometimes, yeah. Then you probably have crabs. That's so not funny. Aren't you guys coming in? Uh-uh. It's gray water. What the hell is gray water? It's basically piss and shit, so I'm just telling you. You guys are splashed around in millions of gallons of dairy pee. So, what are you, are you serious? What are you... Doesn't smell like caca to me, senor. Have you ever heard of a staff infection? I'm also a staff infection. This is so unsanitary. You're literally, this is literally like swimming inside of a toilet bowl right now. You're the reason why we're in this position. And like, he's holding up his hand in a really insistent way. And his, you know, like, when he gets angry and he's very specific and he's very short and he's got presence to him, but like, you can, like, can tell he's got a really good heart as well. Like, like he, he, like, I never massively loved Eddie as a character, but he shot right up. And it's, it's tough to, to work out who my favorite is because Bev was fantastic, Bill was fantastic, Ben was fantastic, Eddie was fantastic, Richie was fantastic. Mike, I feel like they dropped the ball, especially now. The N-word needed to be used. They needed to be fearless uh-huh. with that and say, there is yeah. no doubt about this. Racism is alive and well in Derry. It's fucking terrible. It is in your hometown right now. This is what kids are dealing with. This is what adults are dealing with. It's fucking terrible. Stop turning a blind eye to it. I agree with you on all of that context except the N-word. I don't necessarily think that would have felt right for that time period. Oh, good point. I, it's not 2017 yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When it came back into vogue like crazy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have said some horrible things, and I'm not well, saying... Well, you know, if Henry Bowers was been... in a heated gaming moment, maybe. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and then if he's... Sorry, sorry. I meant asshole, Mike. I meant asshole. And then uh, all the rest of his uh, gang go, well, you know, it's it's fine. It's fine, you know. They they almost treat it like sort of a not not just racism, but there is a bit where Henry's saying like you got to get out of town. Like he's it's almost sort of an immigration parallel as well. Mm, yeah, I yeah. think they get should, out of my town. I think, they should I think he specifically says. exactly. Uh, I could have taken a few less Pennywise scares in, especially in the uh, house which they they stretch that uh, house uh, scene out for quite a way. Especially when you have already seen the film and you know that none of them are going to die there. Mm. Um, I could have taken a bit less of that. Flesh out Mike's story a bit. More. I think if you'd if you'd they'd emphasised the um, the racial um, aggravation mm. between him and Henry, yeah. and again made it maybe a little bit more clear that everything Henry says is parroting something he's heard his father yeah. say. Henry uh, said in the last, in the uh, version video of the book, Henry kills Mike's dog tells his father about it his father gives him a beer it's the one time he's ever been happy with his son and henry it's the one thing the one feeling henry keeps trying to get back and he fixates on hurting mike as a result Mm. uh to, to make this this wretched man proud and that is a fantastic way of uh, laying very clear institutionalized racism. Here is how it happens. Not exactly all the time, but it's a fucking good way of making sure that it carries on. It, they, and now that 
you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, they did make, they did make Butch Bowers, because he gets, what is it, he gets one scene? Yeah, just the one and then he dies. Yeah, and Uh, I think he has two. At the very beginning, he just sort of takes off his glasses, and you don't even know that it's Henry's dad at yeah, that Yeah, he point. just looks at him, and, oh, and yeah, Henry right. backs oh, off. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and then later on, you have the scene where he shoots yeah. at Henry's feet. That's right, that's what right. What were you going to say, Debbie? He's, in the book, that's something that, like Eddie's mother, again, he's an awful person. I mean, King makes that very, very clear, but there is a little bit of nuance there, and I, I think, and like you said, with you know that about his son, and how, how you know this? How much that shaped Henry? Mm. I think that a little bit more characterization of Butch, just flesh him out a little bit more. One extra scene slightly earlier, like in between. Mm. Yes. Two. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like this is you know that it's not quite so simple as he's just awful to his son all mm. of the time. I actually ended up feeling sorry for Henry, uh, specifically during that scene when uh, his his father um, barks at him in the manner of a Vietnam drill sergeant, and the age matches up exactly right to make sure that he's a vet who uh, was got fucked up in the war, same as in the book. He was fucked up in the war during World War Two. He goes, Barr! and Henry like seizes up, and then he shoots at his feet. They've all, all also seeded that during the rock fight. After Henry loses, his friends run away. He's sort of on the <clears> ground, <throat> beaten and dazed, and doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And it's almost like in a parallel dimension, Richie gives him the finger, and then one of them, I don't know who, like, it doesn't seem natural that any of them, certainly not Bev, certainly not Mike, certainly not Richie, uh, maybe Ben comes back and goes, hey man, do you want to hang out with us since everyone else you, you heard, are you okay? Just some someone show Henry like, I'm not saying be nice to Nazis, but they're just going fuck you man, and then walking off ensures that Henry continues down this horrible dark path, and it's really tough to say that because I am totally on the side of punching the living shit out of Nazis and Henry's totally on the way but I felt sorry for him because you saw his home life, because you saw that 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 level of pain. Mm. And you know, again, we might get a bit of dimensionality later with Mike, with Henry, with Eddie, depending, like you know, what what they can do with the second one, because they can not only bring in the adults but bring in the kids again as well for little bits, just to give you some <clears throat> connective tissue, just to go go right. Here is how Ben got apparently to look like. Um, Dude from Free's Company. John Ritter. John Ritter. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think I get what you mean, that, that for Henry to be shown some compassion at some point would have been a very powerful thing. I think the, the difficulty with that kind of situation Yeah, it couldn't happen in this story. He, oh, no. But he, he absolutely needed some compassion. It absolutely was not the job of any of the kids that he just pounded the crap out of to give it to him. Yeah. Yeah, but who's gonna? Exactly. No one that's gives the, a shit about Henry. That's the difficulty. His friends don't. The yeah. teachers are just waiting for him to leave. Yeah. His father would have beaten him to death and been fine with that's it. That's the difficulty. It's joining the dots. But what I was going to say was, with regards to the um, uh, this this theme that I picked up from the book, or picked up. It's made extremely clear. I didn't have to be particularly um, uh, carefully reading of it to pick it up. Um, is this sins of the father concept? And I think that is it's there in the 
whole town, but it's not necessarily as emphasised in the individual parents. But in the mm. book, you very much have this sense that um, that people are the way they are because of how they've been raised, because of how they've been treated by their parents. Something has happened. Even um, uh, Bev's husband, there's a little bit of backstory for him, and he, you know he is the way he is because his mother used to beat the shit out of him. Mm. Um, it's it's this idea that these um, these lines of transmission of terrible behaviour and sadistic acts and lack of compassion and uh, sense of being made to feel powerless is passed down and passed down and passed down. And there's, there are choices involved. At some point, people, you know, obviously people do have to make choices about whether or not they're going to pass that behaviour on to the next set of people. But it's, it's never in any doubt that these, apart from with Patrick, which we, we did discuss briefly, the fact that Patrick's uh, actions and behaviour do not appear to have any particular... There's no correlation. Seed. He was just born like that. Yeah. In the book. Mm. Um, and this is after, by the way, I railed against Steve so much in the Stranger Things podcast. <laughs> Fuck Steve! Despite all my complaints on that show, I will always prize the storylines where redemption for even the worst of people is possible. Over stories where evil is simply punished with destruction. There's something comforting about seeing the worst of people being given a second chance. If we've seen their pain, if we've seen that they are in fact human. Part of us wants them to be able to come back from the darkness. Because we've all done fucked up shit we'd like to be forgiven for. And as much as the world needs to be cleansed of hate, it also needs compassion. It's a really difficult balance between mercy and punching. All I can say is that Belch Huggins made the right choice by not going with Henry down to the sewers. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. really did. Yet sucked through a pipe backwards going on that road. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Is that better or worse than Frankenstein's monster swiping your head off your shoulders? Is that what happens in there? I think so. Swiping your head off your shoulders. Jesus. Someone, someone gets their head ripped off, and I think it's Belch. Yeah. I, I believe it was Belch, yes. Right. Jeez. What happens to... <laughs> Double Toasted mentioned that they had, they had Draco Malfoy in their gang. They, they had to borrow bullies from other movies. <laughs> But I mean, the bullies have gotten a lot of flack in uh, uh, when people are finding um, faults in the film, and it's that they are underdeveloped. Um, they've honestly, I can understand that there wasn't time in this case. The fact that you're getting it from the points of view of just the the, the losers. If there isn't enough time to develop Mike, mm, there isn't enough time, isn't to, time develop to develop Belch Huggins. No. Yeah. <laughs> they can address the whole Mike thing. That I I really like the fact uh, that they are waiting with this to see how this first movie turns out, what people like. It's... Uh, Double Toasted said this, this isn't none of your sort of uh, Harry Potter or your Kill Bill or your Pirates of the Caribbean bullshit making them back to back. And I'm like, well, no, Harry Potter, it was a case that this is a huge book and it ties up so many loose ends and we want to do it justice. It's not just a cash grab. They, those two films ended up really fucking fantastic and they complement mm -hmm. one another. And it's not like Kill Bill where it's actually a four-hour film but it makes the most sense to divide it into two sections. Also, with Harry Potter, they didn't really have a lot of choice. Those mm. kids were getting older by the minute. Yeah, but don't lump that in with Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean where they made the second one and then they were like, hey, let's just keep the sets and characters around and, and we'll do a third one. We don't have a script for it yet, but how hard can it be right? a script like they were saying that, that was the wrong way of making two films but 
you take the golden compass and they did what this appears to have been doing, which is like, well, we'll see how the first movie turns out and then we might make a second one. No, 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 because you guys are gutless and they literally made, the, uh, you know, coming up next week, folks, or in the next couple of weeks, they, they literally made it um, with their eye only on the uh, uh, the dollars and because they didn't make the dollars and they hadn't made a good enough film because all they were doing was just trying to get it done and make money... Mm. It was asinine. This was like, let's make the best version of the Losers Club segment of it that we possibly can. And then we will deal with the rest in the AM, my man. Yeah. This is a, uh, I think this is actually a really good example of a trend that I think we're going to be seeing in the next couple of years. Yeah. Of these two-part stories, but each part is independent of one another. Because it's also what they're doing with Avengers Affinity War. It's going to be two parts, but they've uh, the Russo brothers have said each part will be an independent film that mm. works together that they work together with one another. Mm. But you could watch either one of them and get a complete arc through yeah. it. See that I'm I'm hoping that won't result in people saying things to me like which Kill Bill movie do you prefer? I can't tell you that. They're perfectly balanced. <laughs> it's this it's, it's a redundant choice. Um. Uh, I honestly I can't imagine seeing it chapter two on its own in isolation without it chapter one and going well that was a great story I wonder if there's any more to it <laughs> they they would have to put in just enough flashback that it's not uh, it's not so over the top that the first one becomes redundant hmm. but it gives you enough to connect the dots either way what they if uh, what they do is I, I, I'm going to guess that they're going to diverge from the from the book a lot more for this one, mm. um, and that they are going to go out of their way to make the best version of it, chapter two, that they can. I wouldn't even object to more it prologue stories or even some kind of continuation, uh, as long as they, yeah, you're making faces, as long as they keep that remit of the best that it can. Ultimately, because like that's what Marvel do. Mm. You yeah. compared it to Marvel, Brendan, this, it's bang on. that The idea of adherence to quality has served Marvel very, very well. And they're not just churning it out because I people suppose, like this. Yeah, I suppose in a way I'm just thinking, if you want to go on and do a, a whole Stephen King shared universe, go do the other books rather than trying to make up more It stories. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Do another Shining. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're definitely getting more Stephen King stories. Have a stab King at Christine. Stories. Oh yeah, he's he's hot shit now. Mm. Yeah, like yeah. we're gonna get ready for like Salem's Lot, probably The Shining, um, almost mm. certainly. Um, the stand. I mean, it, the stand it's is gonna happen at some point. Mm. Uh, so that's, we need to hold like, off on doing another carry for a little while. Though, no more yeah. dream catchers either. No dream. No oh, dream catchers. Oh. Stop with the shit weasels. Like, but that's the thing because like <laughs> Stephen King movies were just bad. By and large, like some of them were good, and by and large they were bad. You can not only improve on those movies, but you can improve on the kind of trashy novels that they come from. Yeah, you know, yeah. about a, a deadly fetus that attacks Bristol. Mm. Oh. Very funny. <laughs> Sorry, that's Scarf Marenghi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, All yeah, over the I, floor of the post office. I think there is going to have to be substantial change with part two because while the essential differences between the 1950s and the 1980s are not inconsiderable, but the gulf between those two is not as wide as the gulf between the 80s and the 20-teens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Hmm. I think somebody said that the the 80s was probably the last decade that you could do the kid era that way because after that they would not have been allowed out on their own. The whole there's all sorts of things. You could maybe do Clinton era, maybe. Just I want more yeah. 90s nostalgia movies. We've, <laughs> yeah. we've done oh, the 80s. The 80s happen. is done. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But you see, here's the problem: when you're into 90s nostalgia, that's millennial nostalgia, and I get the impression millennials don't like their nostalgia very much. <laughs> <laughs> if you look back on um, the, the 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 great eight seasons of The Simpsons, there was a hell of a lot of stuff going on at, at that time, and you know, culture yeah. was changing, and The Simpsons in formed on that I heavily and so. that's the show of the 90s that everyone keeps forgetting because it's still around yeah. and yeah. I say that like I'm not like only two years off being a millennial myself mm. <laughs> <laughs> my, my foot is not firmly in Gen X believe me mm. <laughs> side note fairly genius including New Kids on the Block and that it was being listened to by the oh. New Kid on the Block oh, absolutely yeah. Yeah. that was so adorable mm. oh. I, that's one of my favourite scenes uh, partly because he's so pure and adorable and like you know like you can see his face changing from oh she's like he's he's seen her before to being like no she's like the, like the way she speaks to him is so kind and so alive and human and vibrant you can completely see why he fell in love with her at that mm, point absolutely. it sells the power of that it really does also um sixth sense link oh yeah yeah new kids on the block yeah Oh, Donnie Wahlberg. Donnie Wahlberg. Nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ben's character in the new movie reminded me a lot of Dusty from Stranger Things. Yes. And it, I had a very similar reaction, like, you're adorable, I want to walk up to you and hug you and pinch your cheeks, because you are just made of adorableness. There's some subtleties to Ben's character as well, although he doesn't get the, the development of Bill or Bev. Um, there's there's a couple of little moments like um, there's a point where he says something about um, of all the schools <laughs> I've been to, which instantly tells you he's been to lots of schools, which at mm. his age is is unusual. Yeah. yeah. Oh, another um, source of uh, its uh, huge success, the uh, Duffer Brothers. They came in and said, can we make an it? And the uh, producers were like, nah, we, don't, we want someone who's done a film that made money. And then um, Muschietti came along and had made a film which made money. It's not a fantastic film. But I think I might yeah. like, re-watch it. Because like, there is some, like, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's really intriguing. And then it just sort of descends into formulaia. However, Stranger Things came out last August and blew everyone's fucking minds. Mm -hmm. And so when you're told, hey, guys, Stranger Things 2 coming up soon, and everyone's like, oh, God, Stranger Things 2, and then it turns up and it's like, oh, this is kind of like extra Stranger Things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is like original Stranger Things, and suddenly like, it's, it's, it's scratching that itch exactly when it becomes itchiest. It totally is. Yeah. And what was it you said? We're going to go and make our own itch with Blackjack and Hookers. <laughs> they did. And that, like, as a result of that decision, like, you know, money-oriented though it may have been, we get Stranger Things and this version of it. So yeah. that was a happy day, yeah. ultimately. And they were in production and... at the same time, which blows my yeah. mind to think that uh, for example, Finn Wolfhard could have easily yeah. been, hey, it's that kid from It in this mm. Stranger Things show if they just changed the release dates. And yeah. now it's, hey, it's the kid from Stranger Things in It, and he's doing a wonderful job of it. 
it's fantastic. He could so easily have been cast as uh, Bill as well. Like, it makes perfect yeah. sense for yeah. him to play Bill. And it's great to see him just step back a little and just fuck around. And that, the language that comes out of that kid, <laughs> wash your mouth out. Like, he even made people in England laugh at cultural um, idioms which don't even make any sense to British people. He went, oh, look at this motherfucker here. He's licking Hamburger Helper. No one in England <laughs> knows what Hamburger Helper is, but everybody laughed because of just how um, explosive Richie was. Like, uh, sometimes when kids swear, it gets real, like, it's like flesh crawling. Like, eventually, South Park, with their constant swearing, like, to begin with in the movie, was hilarious because they, there was a context to it. They ha- hadn't been swearing, and now suddenly, because of the movie, they've been corrupted. Mm. But now they, like, they even beat their F-bombs up until a certain point, and now they're just like, fuck you, fuck, 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 and family guy, Jesus Christ. Like, the fact that most of it's coming from Richie, like, kind of underlined, like, this is how I make new century abigail swears butler doesn't swear mm. at all in fact he says pardon say, my french over the silliest words yeah this is this is the bottom line though it's it's got to be natural it's got to be i mean if you look if at everyone's way, swearing like food fight is a perfect example of like oh it's hilarious and everyone's the same character yeah this foul now it means nothing if everybody's yeah. doing it it's meaningless but if you look at um at how they play it in stand by me mm. um you've got uh Gordy? No, Corey. Corey Feldman's character. Teddy? Teddy. Is swearing constantly. Mm. Gordy swears occasionally, but it sounds like he's somebody who only swears occasionally. Yeah. It doesn't Wouldn't feel do it in front quite of his mom. right. Yeah. It feels a little bit forced. And I think basically this this is you could say this of any um, performances by children. Anything they do that seems natural to them mm. is going to come across so much better than anything mm. they do that does not feel natural to yeah. them. This felt very real growing up. You know, I grew up very sheltered. And so I didn't I didn't swear very much as a kid, but you would always get around. There were always a few kids or that one kid who would swear a lot. (laughs) And it it felt it felt, you know, cringeworthy. But at the same time, it was kind of exciting because, ooh, this is forbidden. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly how Richie felt. Yeah, and I almost feel like the fact that we don't see any of Richie's home life actually puts an interesting twist on him. Because does he swear a lot because his parents don't care if he swears or there's a lot of swearing going on at home? Or does he swear a lot because he comes from an incredibly repressive home and this is the only way he can get it out? He has to explode. Yeah, that makes sense. Ooh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that's a good Also, point. Um, uh, Debbie, you've just finishing uh, finished reading a lot, a lot of Richie going, oh, senor, and doing his Mexican uh, voice, and like, doing his Chinese voice, and doing his piccaninny uh, voice. Yeah. <laughs> just, your skin just crawls away while yeah. you're reading it, and goes, and says, I'll be under the I'll sofa. I'll be over there reading some Clyde Barker. Yeah. I'll be back in a bit. They switched that out in the uh, miniseries for just, oh, and like just have him acting like um a, like a vaudevillian or something like that mm. and in this he's just the filthy kid who won't stop talking about sex and um that that works mm. that's and make inappropriate it go and the- i was yeah. just about to say i'm i'm going with repressed yeah yeah <laughs> yeah specifically about eddie's mom of all people yeah yeah mm. like well, they have this focus and that's because they- eddie he knows eddie it bothers the hell out of eddie oh okay. yeah 
Well, and he and Eddie specifically have this great back and forth. Like they're always sniping each other. And, and then at the very end, you like, I think they specifically embrace after the circle, uh, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just like a very small, quiet detail that made those two characters specifically Mm -hmm. feel uh, very kind of like extra genuine, extra empathic, uh, just, you know, they've, they've got this whole thing where, you know, through the whole movie, they're just kind of bitching at each other. But that's just how dudes are when they're that age and friends. But, you know, when the chips are down, they really do care about each other. But through that whole thing, just the constant, you know, your mama jokes. And and I'm really surprised by how genuine Finn feels when he's doing that, because he feels really genuine when he's doing Richie. He also feels really genuine when he's doing Mike and Stranger Things and mm. having to kind of yeah. switch gears because he's got to be doing those things basically back to back and having to switch yeah. gears like that is, is not got to be easy. No, no. Yeah, it, I, I, he's going to go far. Yeah. I agree. I'll say yeah. that now. Yeah. It was a little bit disconcerting for me going from stranger things. And I love the character of Mike in stranger mm. things and seeing him as Richie. And at first I found it very off putting. And so for me, I definitely prefer his portrayal of Mike, but but at the same time, it does feel very genuine. Him him portraying Richie does feel genuine, and this feels like a real kid. So mm. full kudos to Finn because mm. that absolutely was amazing. It really was, and that that last scene where they all um, drift away from the circle, uh, that was. Uh, that gave me a particular yeah. few stabs um, because of a certain something about the way it's played out. Stan leaves first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that hug between Richie and Eddie is there. I also like the um, the fact that Stan says, I hate you guys, and then smiles. And it's like, ha that relieves the tension. No, but he means it. On some level, he actually does hate these guys because they because of what they have made him do. When he screams at them after he's had fucking teeth around his face, you know, you left me, you, uh, you know, you left me in the dark. How could you leave me like that? You're not my friends. Again, that's coming from a place of I believe this to be true. Mm. Like, you know, he, he, he does and says what he needs to to stay in this group, but um, there's there's a part of Stan that uh, is is very afraid of what he has to keep doing, mm. and I love the fact that when they're arguing at the uh, mouth of the um, doesn't smell like caca to me, senor, um, the <laughs> the sewer pipe. Um, Eddie's the one who's going, you know, this is so, so gross, it's grey water, and you're just, just walking around in like piss and shit, and he's making all the fuss, and it's what Stan's thinking. Because, like, to, to Stan, this is the the disorder. But Stan can't even say it because he's so horrified by what they have to do. He's just nervously, like, sitting, letting Eddie do it all for him. I wonder if a part of that, it's it's not this in the book because that's not his family setup. But the idea that they're at the point where their childhood <laughs> faith in things, including their parents, is starting to be chipped away. And indeed religion. And religion. And Stan's father is a rabbi which means it's going to be that much more difficult for him to have pure faith in faith because he gets to see it every day at the dinner table. Mm. And also in the face of something so evil, how could you keep believing in something that would allow this to exist? Yeah. There's supposedly Which is a part cut- of why Stan is so, um, so uh, freaked out by it in the book. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's supposedly a uh, speech that Stan gives... 
you can hear parts of it in the uh, trailers, but it's not in the movie. And it's supposedly during his um, uh, bar mitzvah that actually addresses exactly what you were saying, Sharon. The, you know, how can this be allowed to happen to kids? And they're doing a director's cut. They recently uh, oh, confirmed that will specifically put that back in. And I feel that that's a like Stan needed moments like that. And, and basically, yeah. you know, getting up during his bar mitzvah and, you know, saying those words to his father, I think feels like a very big thing uh, that needed to happen. But, mm-hmm. you know, even with that, one of the other things that was changed that I think works for where Stan has to go next is <clears throat> what, what he must have seen when the painted woman had her teeth around his face. You yes. know, we, we saw what Beverly saw when Pennywise opened his mouth that way. So yeah. he got at least a glimpse of the deadlight. So like, he's the only other person who's seen that and his, he's not nearly as strong a person as Beverly. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. that when was a very concerted about- decision. Cause I think they, they need Beverly to be able to explain to them more mm. about what they're dealing well, with the- because yeah. Stan won't be there. Yeah. Seeing into the deadlights is something that happens in the books and they do talk about what's in there, about what they see when they're in there. Mm. And except from certain people's perspectives, which I I think personally the book could have done with more of. Um, But there's none of that in this. And I am really hoping that that's something that gets explored in the um, in the adult section. Yeah. One thing with uh, Stan, when you talk about how he seems to be the one that is having trouble with this childlike belief, I think part of that is also that we actually see him become an adult on screen. We are there at his bar mitzvah. Mm. Yeah. And so essentially he has to go through this rite of passage to become an adult and leave childish things behind to please his father. And as a result, that actually makes him less capable of fighting it and (gasps) makes him walk toward this being an adult and being one of the people who just ignores all this stuff. And wow, that was a gasp. Well done. (laughs) Yeah. And well, I was just connecting it up with the idea that Bev has a cusp moment as well, where she is about to be catapulted into an adulthood that she is not ready for and would not be fair to foist upon her. And she kicks it away. Ah, yeah. Yeah. The tampons and the haircutting. Uh, Well, I was thinking more specifically when a dad grabs her. Well, that and she she kicks out and and runs away. Yeah. Do you um, want to go into? But yeah, yeah, that that seems like a good time to and and like I said, you've you've touched on it already. The idea that that the bathroom is her place of safety, and um, it is polluted by the blood that comes out of the sink, um, and the fact that they've already had the the layup to that with her buying the tampons in the the chemist, which I think is she. she she talks briefly about it, or there are there are moments in her scenes in the book where that is touched on, but it's not something that that actually happens. Um, and this idea that her her beco- for her becoming an adult is something that is going to bring its own terrors with it because it's all tied up with how her father behaves towards her. And yes, the cutting her hair off is, it seems to be a way of um, bringing her back down to a more child state. And then the act of doing that literally comes back up out of the sink and tries to strangle her. Bev seems to have the most um, 
complex relationship with approaching adulthood. Um, and I, I thought the way they explored it in the film was incredible. It could have been done so ham-fistedly, and it wasn't. It was. It's not exactly subtle, um, but it's done in such a powerful way that I think it works. And I, I personally would say that about a lot of things that that happen with Bev in the book. And I think that that goes over to one of the things that I thought I was going to be really, really pissed off about, which is the fact that at the end of it or towards the end of things, she basically becomes the bait, um, which is is new for the film. That doesn't happen in the book. Um, but again, I thought the way it was done, it's not subtle, but again, it is very powerful. And I actually appreciated it a lot more than I expected to. I, I took it. I, I totally agree with you. And I took that as being, it seems to me that of the seven, Bev is the least scared of this. Bev is yes. the least scared of it. And therefore, she is the biggest threat. And Absolutely. it took her, not because she's the girl, but mm. because she is the biggest threat. And I felt like I felt like they, they threaded that needle extremely well to the point that she's not a damsel at all. She's, no, he's trying to get out of the way the biggest threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that because I, I wondered if it was that he doesn't recognize that she's the biggest threat, that he grabs her because he thinks she should be the most scared. But then if you layer on the idea that it is surprised when she lands that blow on it, um, the uh, the I, I think he's fascinated by her because she's not scared of him. Of all of them. It it can sense the deepest fear from her, as in, like, they all uh, have have experienced fear in their time, but Bev is soaked in it when her father Mm. bears down on her. And it, you know, it comes sniffing like a lion when there's, you know, a a wounded gazelle. Or shark Mm. blood in the water. Yeah, exactly Mm. that. So it stands to reason. And I'm very glad that she took a prominent part in the the final battle rather than just being a, a damsel. Mm. But like Debbie was just saying, and I, I, but yeah, the idea that it is drawn to her because she is the most scared generally, but she is the least scared of him. Yeah. Well, she has, she's the one who has an actual monster already growing in her home. And mm. so once she gets to the point where she recognizes that Pennywise is just, you know, is just basically play acting. She's like, well, you know, I just literally had to hit my father over the head with a toilet seat because he was, you know, going to turn into a predator in the sanctuary of my home. What have you got? Um, I, I have incredibly complicated feelings about what they did with Beverly because dramatically and story narrative mechanically, it really does work. And it really assists with the dramatic turn of, the losers have that all is lost moment of they stop believing in the losers as a fellowship when Eddie is hurt and Mike and Bill have a fight. And then as soon as they find out that one of their own is threatened, boom, no questions asked. They gear up to go and, you know, save, save their, save their friend. It, it's just also kind of unfortunate because it's, it's, irre- it, it's just coded as a damsel moment, even though that's not really how it, works it's just kind of an unfortunate like culturally that's how we've 
seen it so many times, it's hard not to see that as being reductive to her character, even though, like Debbie said, she's the strongest of them. She's the one who injures it first. She is the biggest threat. And then she gets woken up by True Love's kiss. So it's, I don't know, it just feels kind of, it feels kind of odd. Like it, like I said, it still works. It's just, and, and it definitely works a lot better than um, the book and how she brings them together in the book. Uh, uh, yeah. I think the way that kind of worked for me, um, and it was a bit of an awe moment as well, um, but it, it didn't feel like true love's kiss to me, although it was obviously the way it was painted because her true love is not Ben. She may be his, but he is not hers. I like that it's framed as in she hasn't chosen yet because she has this definite reaction to Ben and the, the poem, and she's mm-hmm. obviously very affected by it, but then she's also very affected by Bill, and it's just mm-hmm. like neither of them is painted as the Dustin person. She's just like, yeah, I like these people. We'll see. Yeah, but that that to me is kind of at that point, Ben was kind of standing in for all of them and it was just a way of telling her at the great distance she had been pulled to that they had they were there for her. And that just, I suppose, yeah, it is kind of a reversal of that scene. That knowing that the group was still there and still together is what breaks the deadlock. Yeah, and it almost. works because he believes it will. Not yes, because he's and her, that too. Yeah. yeah, not because he's yeah. her true love, but because that's that's what he believes. That's, that's what works in fairy tales. Oh, yes, and the fact that it's what he believes will work, not what she believes will work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's not sitting there thinking, true love's kiss will save me. Well, and it's it's a love. It is in a way, it's true love, but it's it's a friendship love. Mm, yeah, it, it's kind. I suppose you could argue that it's kind of true love in the frozen sense. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, because they are all willing to to like be selfless with the you know, especially at that moment, they're all you know, and like literally a few seconds later, they're given an out. They're exactly. they're told mm-hmm. you can leave. I'll just take him. You all can yeah. go and be like, no, no, we'll we'll die for each other. Absolutely. And it could be argued that at that point, Richie displays true love. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite line well, of the movie. I would, yeah. I would argue that Richie's faith is most placed in Bill. Like, we don't see a lot yes. of his family life. We don't see a lot of his, but, but he, like, you know, he's the one who will always correct himself when, oh, yeah, Georgie's um, missing. Georgie's missing. And, like, mm. he follows Bill's lead right up until the point where they're all, reminded that they're mortal and then he's like oh screw this you're willing to feed us into a meat grinder mm-hmm. and that's that's his moment of of you know tested faith yeah mm. absolutely and he he loves eddie like a brother but he loves bill like a father exactly ah. yeah and it feels like a terrible betrayal when bill punches him as well mm. just mm-hmm. even though like he's he's goading bill to test him like how far how much do i have to to uh, push you until you break and um, show me that you don't care as much about me as you uh, and us as you do about pursuing this. My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. He says that all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing, an evil thing that feeds off the people of Derry. But it can't be one thing. We all saw something different. 
Maybe. Or maybe it knows what scares us most, and that's what we see. I, I, I saw a leper. He, he was like a walking infection. But you didn't. Be because it isn't real. None of this is. None of this makes any sense. They're all like bad dreams. I don't think so. I know the difference between a, a bad dream and real life, okay? We're all afraid of something. Got that right. Why, Rich? What are you afraid of? Clowns. One thing that struck me, uh, again, we're going to go back, this is not This is maybe just a fragment, but um, when, uh, I don't remember the name of that horrible girl who gets the uh, garbage dumped on Bev. By the way, fantastic establishing scene. Yeah. Just like the yeah. first thing Bev does is stub out a cigarette on the uh, uh, toilet wall, but not in a like bad girl attitude way, but in a kind of a... <sighs> Here, Here we, we go fucking again. go. <laughs> yeah. But like, not, not even in like a, a deep sigh, but just in a kind of a right. Okay. Let's get it over with. Must be Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, when that girl says, you know, I'll, I'll sign your uh, cast, and she's the one who's just uh, told Eddie um, about the gazebos. And um, she, you never see her writing loser. You just see him writing, uh, you know, putting the V over it on, in what I can only imagine is his mother's lipstick. Or no, nail a, varnish? A, no, it's a red marker pen. Oh, yeah. red marker pen. Okay. Probably um, a Sharpie. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but when she, like, she, you could, you see her face for a moment after she's just told him it's all bullshit. And then she looks up at him and they don't do anything with effects, but something about that girl's malevolent eyes just, boom, it's Pennywise right there. Yeah. And it was like the eyes of this fucking creature underneath Derry puppeteering not just the clown but fucking everyone mm. well she reminded me a little bit of this and this is this is really um played up from the book we know that there are girls at the school that are mean to bev but it's not gone into with as much detail mm -hmm. but she looked like an aspect of henry bowers to me she is another one who is she seems she's bigger than the others she seems older than they are um she's another one who's approaching adulthood and is soon gonna have to make that choice between do i start ignoring this mm. um and uh, and effectively okay and if i do start ignoring this i'm helping i'm be i am becoming part of the uh the beast and then she does and it, that that is a significant departure because in the book he is told by I think it's the pharmacist himself, isn't yeah. it, Mr. King? Mm -hmm. yes. Creepy motherfucker yes. in the film. <coughs> well, you look just like Lois Lane. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I really liked that. I thought that was a really good um, uh, alteration. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I didn't quite like about that is it comes, I think, a little too late in the film. Because mm -hmm. by this point, they've already reclaimed the name Losers, which... Yeah. Fine, I can understand. Maybe you could make the argument that uh, that at that point they had also gone their separate ways, and this might have yeah. been a reminder. But they never really play that up, and then he changes the letter, and I'm like, what, what does lover mean in this context other than it makes a really great trailer shot? There is something to be uh, said for him changing it to a V, and then later when he's uh, with the Losers Club, scribbling over the V again to reinforce the S. That would have been kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, when it comes down to it, that you know they may have taken back the word, but as far as they're concerned, what holds them together is love. So it's everybody else who's fucking wrong when they label them with that word. 
Oh, okay. I can see. All right. it, that it, makes sense. It's our word. You are not allowed yeah. to use that word. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Unless you're in a heated gaming moment. <laughs> yeah. Look, um, look, look, look. Okay. Who hasn't bitten a child's arm off and dragged them into a sewer in a heated gaming moment? Come on. <laughs> Somebody asked me, uh, somebody asked, not me directly, um, it was Matt, uh, said, uh, what is a PewDiePie and why is it in my timeline? <laughs> and I'm like, how could you not have heard of this guy? And I, I managed to boil it down to um, a thin Cartman who got famous by screaming. Yep. Jenny Nicholson, however, is one of my very favorite YouTubers. This is what she had to say on Pennywise. Pennywise can move super fast in that scary, jerky, stop motion way that like Japanese horror movie ghosts do. But if you're a little kid and your legs are like a foot long and you back up a couple steps, he will not be able to catch you. He like gets tired and gives up. Pennywise is aware enough of modern popular culture to know which children's things to make scary. Like if he showed up this year, he would probably do like uh, Five Nights at Freddy's animatronics or something like that. Pennywise has an increasingly long windup for scaring his victims. Like, if it was me, I would be like, biting a kid's arm off has proved pretty effective at making them feel fear, but Pennywise doesn't like to take the easy way out. He appreciates the craftsmanship that goes into a good scare and prefers to lead them on like fun scavenger hunts that lead to scary things instead. Pennywise mistakenly thinks that once he scares you, that scare becomes like an inside joke between the two of you, and he'll do callbacks to it later. Like if he scared you with eggs, he'll call you Egg Boy. And if he scared you with clowns, he'll go beep beep because that's the sound that clown noses make. Pennywise doesn't care what anyone thinks. His monster friends probably all thought he was a total weirdo for wanting to be a clown. Like they were probably like, a clown is not scary. And then Pennywise had to sit them down and tell them about the use of children's iconography as an ironic means to evoke horror from children. They were like, why don't you just be a big spider or something that elicits an immediate fear response. And then even after he demonstrated that clowns and balloons and stuff could be scary, they were like, why is a clown your default go-to thing though. Like, just admit to us that you like being a clown. Pennywise understands that there is a nuance in using children's things for scare purposes. It's a fine line, like him rocking on a rocking horse would probably be scary, but him energetically skipping rope would not be very scary. Swinging ominously on a swing set is scary, but going across some monkey bars is not scary. It's really an art. Pennywise is stronger against one child at a time and has a lot more difficulty beating them if they're like all together in a big group. But if you are in a group, he can isolate one of you by suddenly making you appear someplace else so you're separated from everybody. But he can only do this once, and he doesn't do it again after that. Pennywise is a clown for fear reasons, but doesn't seem to grasp a clear understanding of what a clown is or does. Or maybe he's just not good at clown things, like he even named himself Pennywise the Dancing Clown to like avoid any expectations that he's gonna do anything other than dancing. I'm convinced he can't even make a balloon animal, like even one of the simple beginner ones, like a dog or a sword. Pennywise likes to receive full credit for whatever he's doing. Pennywise shapeshifts into what you're afraid of the most, so he like turns into this scary lady from a painting and then retreats behind the corner. You just see that feminine scary hand curled around the door frame and he disappears. And then he peeks back out like just making sure you're aware that was me. It's Pennywise. 
here I am. Like just in case the kids thought they were being attacked by a different unrelated supernatural monster in Pennywise's house. Pennywise might at some point just give up trying to figure out what you're scared of and just go like praying mantis or something. Pennywise had like a long trial period of things he tried to make scary, but they just didn't evoke that level of ironic fear. Like he came to get one kid in a playground and he was like, I'll slide down the twisty slide. That'll scare them. But like the twisty slides are never steep enough and there's always like too much friction. So he's like kind of going down the slide and awkwardly stopping at certain intervals. He had to like clomp his feet on the plastic slide in a really undignified way to get himself moving again. And the kid's just standing 20 feet away watching him come down the slide like, is this clown gonna get me or? Pennywise has one weakness, physical trauma. The key around Bradley's yes. neck. Yes, okay, Theor theories. Okay, well, but for me, this has at least two levels, possibly even three. Okay. Um, the first they don't do anything one, by accident, I'll tell you that right now. Obviously they don't. Um, the first one is that um, uh, Beverly is obviously a latchkey kid. Which yes. means, so, um, to, to which, those of us who have not had okay, to be latchkey kids. To people who are not familiar with the term latchkey kid, um, which while there have always been latchkey kids, it was very, very prominent in the 80s. Um, lots of people were either disapproving of it or by necessity had to become them. Basically, you get home from school, your parents are out at work, you have to have your own key so that you can let yourself in. Yeah, they were disapproving of the fact that mom wanted to work a job at the same time as dad. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the fact that financially it was kind of a necessity for a lot of people mm. is kind of by the And in Bev's case, her father, her mother is dead. Not in the book, yeah. but in this case, in her this, mother she's, is not she's around. She's not around, at the very yeah. Least. She's, she's completely absent. But, um, but yeah, which, which basically, again, gives another reason why Bev is closer to adulthood. She doesn't have that consistent parental support mm. um, that, that some of the others enjoy. And it just emphasizes the idea that basically she's having to grow up before her time but wearing that key around her neck is totemic that's not that's not just oh, i want to make sure i keep my key somewhere safe mm. it's um like that that means something but to no her. but oh yeah absolutely but the the point with that is that that's that's the whole thing with a latchkey kid they are technically still too young to be trusted with a key so mm. you have to find a way to get them to hold on to it that means it won't get lost right um so there's that the second layer for me is I'd the fact... I trust Bev with a key. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'd trust Bev with a key, indeed. But her father um, probably wouldn't. Indeed. Um, the other thing is that um, Bev is surrounded by locks. She locks herself in the bathroom in order to try and be safe. It doesn't work. Her father, Pad, locks the door at the end to stop her getting out. We first see her in a, a locked bathroom stall. Absolutely. It's, again, doesn't keep her safe. Exactly, which basically means that although she has this key, which she puts her faith in, it doesn't work. Hmm. Hmm. Um, locks are still used against her or prove no defence when she tries to use them as defence. Um, also, the uh, the other layer is Bev is the key. Mm. Mm. She's the key master. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Instead of the gatekeeper, plot twist. Yeah. Um, um, and because the key is, you have to be able to face that fear, and she can. She's also the first one to say we can do it because we're together. Um, like she's the one who first comes on to that fact. Um, yes. But to 
to stress what what Alex had said, you know, it's not just totemic. Like she literally grips it for comfort at some point. I think mm. that's specifically her mother's key, either after her mother died mm. or you know maybe she left. Like that's the key that Beverly chose to use for mm. being the latchkey kid, specifically the one that her mom used to use. Right. Maybe her mother was a better person. In the book, um, you can corroborate this one, Debbie. Uh, she, we, we basically lose an aspect of Bev's home torment because her mother is quite aware or, or, or like on some level aware that her husband is encroaching on their daughter, but she never really follows it up. She mm-hmm. never really confronts either of them in a concerted way of, I need to get this. No. Um, uh, and she's always, she's always exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. It it really that one's really struck me as odd. um, Bev's mom in the book, because my impression seems to be that the dad and mom have at least an okay relationship between them. Mm. And which generally that's not especially with with, you know, a father to a daughter. If a Mm. father is abusive to a daughter, he is almost always abusive to his wife. Mm. Yeah. A lot of that, I think, the way it's portrayed is denial. Um, There is a lot that, again, Bev's mum is pretending not to see because either, A, she feels like she couldn't do anything about it even if she did see it, so it's easier not to see it, or because she's choosing not to see it because it allows her to maintain the semi-comfortable existence that she's got, Mm. Um, But which which is a facet of, of... where some parents will deny abuse going on because it's it means they would have to change something and for whatever reason they either can't or won't um but i think one shift that that enabled them to make by uh, removing bev's mom entirely is in the book her her internal mother is almost non-existent and very very weak and in the in the film she has entirely internalized the almost avenging mother yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. She, uh, when we were going through the uh, five-man band tropes, uh, Sharon, you classed Bev before we saw the film mm-hmm. as the heavy hitter, but yes. she's definitely the heart in this. She's both. Yeah. Yeah. She can be both. Yeah. yeah. But uh, specifically in the um, uh, book, she's the one who comes up with the the, the wrist rocket and the, the silver slugs. Mm-hmm. They, I think they took out the whole catapult thing because that's very Dennis the Menace of the year. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't quite fit in the 80s. Who had a catapult in 1980? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe a Frisbee. Um, but but- <laughs> they, they switched that for the, um, uh, the bolt gun, which has a, 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 a the double action of also standing in for the, the this is battery acid inhaler. Mm, yeah. the, the fact that it was powered by belief. That also, the bolt gun symbolises Mike being asked to be an adult before his time because yes. he's being given a role that is too old for him. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, just two other little things um, that are uh, kind of symbolic with uh, Bev as well. Um, the In the book... It specifically mentions that she's left-handed. Mm-hmm. Yep. In the film, she's left-handed. Nice. Oh. Now that could have been pure coincidence. Um, Lefties are not that common, though. Uh, in movies, they are. Oh yeah. Yeah, a lot of left-handed actors. A lot of lefties. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but here's the thing. Well, th- what I was trying to work out what whether there is a significance to this. Again, it could be coincidence, but basically, Bev is kind of the point of balance. They're all boys. She's the only girl. 
they're all right-handed. She's the only left-hander. There's there's kind of an element of her bringing a a balance to the scales mm. with the rest of them. Um, did anybody spot the th- at least three references to the turtle? Yeah, I got I got two of them. Okay. Yeah, the um, one in the in the river, and then the uh, Lego turtle. Actually, oh, yeah, def- I forgot the turtle. We've, we've I think we got four. Yeah, the Lego turtle, like and also the model of um, walkie-talkies. walkie-talkies as TRTL 470 Bingo, or something yeah. like that. So we got TRTL on the uh, uh, walkie-talkies in a, in a style that looks like G.I. Joe, by yeah. the way. <laughs> that whole real American hero, he's TRTL. <laughs> right, we might need to check my theory on the first one then. I might be wrong. I might have been seeing it because I was expecting to see it. You see what you want to see. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll need this verified then. Uh, so we've got the turtle uh, walkie-talkies, uh, the the Lego model of the Lego turtle, uh, which was made by Georgie. And I, that got me thinking, did they have green Lego in 1989, like in that abundance? They did they must not. Have the, I was also looking at the uh, the Goober jar because I'm like that looks remarkably like what Goober jars look like right now. Maybe they haven't changed the uh, uh, the, the, the graphics on on it since then. But uh, mo- pretty much everything else looked really correct. Period. But you know, I'm always looking out for that 2012 um, you know anniversary edition Millennium Falcon for Dustin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, as you say, when they're in the creek, um, someone says, there's a turtle down there, and he, he uh, puts his head down and can't see it. Um, this is, of course, um, referencing the great turtle Atuin? No. In Anduin. it, it's Mar- called Maturin. Maturin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Terry Pratchett called it Atuin. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, <laughs> if, if it is the devil, then the turtle is God, and we'll go back into that. We'll come to that uh, in, in part two. Mm-hmm. But the first instance that Sharon may not even actually have seen, just wanted yeah, to see it. Yeah, I, I might have got this wrong then. Um, the In the book, it's golf paraffin wax that um, Mikey, Georgie George brings up the... to put on the boat. And in the book, there is a picture of a turtle on the box. <coughs> ah. Now, you see the box. It does say golf. I thought I saw a turtle underneath it. I thought again, I saw a turtle. I thought I saw a turtle. <laughs> um, but again, it might just have been because I was expecting to see it. Nice. Um but if that's if that's if I'm wrong on that one, then that still means we've got our rule of three. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they they made a note of the fact that the bike was called Silver twice, and they made sure it was the exact same model as the one in the 1990 um, uh, miniseries, which is a, a great touch. And if you listen very carefully when they're riding by the window, I think it's when Ben is in the library, you yep. can hear uh, um, one of them shouting "Hi Ho Silver," which is an antiquated <laughs> phrase in 1989 because no one was watching the Lone Ranger. But it's still there. And um, there's also a bit where one of them is talking to Bill and saying, hey, wait up, you're too fast. You know, they're nice because the silver just really, really low. Shit off a shovel. Um, To me, my bike. Uh, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) there's uh, (laughs) um, the uh, machete specifically said uh, we aren't going to reference the 50s monsters that the kids are scared of so no gill man so don't expect uh, the mummy or the werewolf uh, to be in this film but they are in some capacity did you spot it them both the werewolf hand yeah the werewolf hand in uh, the house on Nebold street when it, like his hand goes massive that is what we would associate especially these days with the giant CGI werewolf yeah. <laughs> um, you know which is nice that Pennywise is keeping up to date. I think we said this last time. 
He's like, what are werewolves like now? Have you gone to CGI yet, or are you still on... Uh... Oh, it's still practical, still practical. Okay, we've got, we got <laughs> another ten years before an American werewolf in Paris. What do the vampires look like these days? You're shitting me, i got a sparkle now? <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea that Pennywise is grumpy with all the effort he has to put in. <laughs> Like, especially now that like, the kids take so much more to scare. Yes. I mean, oh, that would be brilliant. Oh, if if the if the 2016 version is just they find him sat in an old folks' home somewhere, going, you know what? I give up. You guys win. <laughs> Nothing scares <laughs> Like the only thing you can really do is just like creep into the rooms when they're playing jump scare video games, and then you like you get that little burst. It's like you're not really scared. You're just playing up for the camera, you little shit. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and the mummy comes at the end when uh, it, it keeps changing back I, I and was, forth. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, isn't one of the just quick flashes there? Yeah. Specifically, it has tentacles around Ben's head at More that bandages. point that become bandages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, that's right, that's right. I also love the visual representation of the floating at the end around Pennywise's tower that was haunting imagery and it gave it the weight that it had always needed that concept it felt suitably desolate and wrong making this an unnatural creature that needed to be destroyed this is the thing you don't show mercy to as horrendous as it was seeing um, bill put uh, a bolt in georgie's head and fair play to that kid he sold that scene uh, to, to the point where you're like did, like there's that sickening long moment which seems like it went on for like too long to like be, be um, like comfortable for mainstream audiences did, did I just see this guy accidentally on purpose kill his um, child brother and then he starts like like that and like the whole body wisps, twists and torts and, con- and like that the way the violation of his body is straight out of the thing yeah, he is using that as meat to reform <coughs> himself, and it's fuck. It's it's flesh crawling, but um, it, it it evokes the uncanny sense from that movie, and that's why I've recommended it specifically to Josh Garrity. Although it has all the other stuff that Josh Garrity will love, that like that that thing yeah. connection there, he'll he'll dig that because uh, that's his version of horror. I would also comment on the, the scene where that that scene with with specifically with Bill and Georgie. I, I feel like that's partially because that's Bill working through and finally saying, you know, he's saying his goodbye to this, oh, Georgie's only missing, mm-hmm. and holding on to that hope. And I think it's, it's he's struggling to know this is not Georgie. This is clearly not, and this is, I, I, I'm just, for just a few seconds longer, I'm holding on to this. Mm-hmm. And that's why it takes him so long to shoot it with, with the bolt gun. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, it's not because he... Th- it, on some level, it's not because he genuinely thinks it is Georgie, it's because he wants it to be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. Oh, it's bone chilling. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and it's so saddening, and it gets you right in your heart. Again, this is why it confuses a lot of people who want to gatekeep the genre of horror. And no, this is not true horror. True horror is like this. And there's a, there's a lot of that around right now. Mm. You know what true horror does? True horror looks at the things that you don't want to look at. It doesn't present you with a nice, neatly tied up series of jump scares that you're expecting. That you actually do want to look at. Exactly. God. True horror brings out things like, you know what? Maybe sometimes you do feel like throwing your kid out of a window. 
Mm-hmm. Jesus. So you're talking about uh, Babadook there. Okay. Folks, we've said it before, we'll say it again. See the Babadook. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was yes. there was a, um, a tweet campaign for Mother, exclamation mark, uh, which um, uh, if people went to see it and then went to, to see this the the weekend after, they, they were going to get thrown hard. Um, <laughs> but it said, um, true horror was it true horror or true evil doesn't live in the sewers true horror. it lives, it lives inside in your head. you it lives yeah. in your head and I, I just thought if you don't get that the sewers are a metaphor for the exact same shit as the basement in mother you shouldn't be promoting mother and don't want it on metaphor he prefers direct uh, showing you things. <laughs> but I don't think Aronofsky himself ordered that particular no, tweet. That's that's a bad move with Mother. Don't don't take pot shots at it. Bad, <laughs> bad Mother campaign. Well, see, now I've got, like, this image of Darren Aronofsky, like, you know, ringing a bell and saying, I need a tweet composed! And, and like, <laughs> where, where he yeah, does quite. specifically call in his marketing person and do exactly that. I do want to mention it's it's a really minor yeah. thing, but I was very impressed with the with well number one the fact that we we shorthand for the fact that Stan's father is awful. He has that painting in his office. Who the hell wants to have that thing in their office? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking around my office and I'm like, oh, Miss Marvel, I should replace her with a terrifying flautist. <laughs> yeah. And I'll keep her in my creepiest of rooms. <laughs> also, um, the dark the, 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 when, when he puts the the frame back up and it's and she's gone, that that's a genuinely good movie moment. In the yeah, same way as in the, in the Conjuring Two, the bit with the nun on the picture mm. is like it fucking chilled me to my soul. Yes. But that's why that bit of it feels like it belongs in modern horror and mm. actually didn't have its roots in the eighties. Yeah. And it. it that was actually swapped out for uh, in an earlier like 2014 draft that was, and I believe this is referenced in the book, it was a naked woman touching herself which disturbed Stan greatly. And they were like, let's not do that. And, and you know, there, there are other things we can do. And what they went for was something kind of safe. Like, it, it, it still works with what Stan's sense of disorder, mm. but it also fits, like, that could be lifted out and put in a completely different movie, and, like, you hear the flute woman's getting her own spin-off. And you're like, <laughs> oh, so they're doing the conjuring thing, okay. I think there's there's something else as well, which I don't know whether this was intentional. I would like to know if it was, because if it is, it's really fucking subtle. Um, but the shape of the woman is very reminiscent of Munch's scream. Yes. 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 And I read something in an article I was reading earlier today that was nothing to do with it, um, but it referenced the scream, and it said something that I had not known before, which is that is not a picture of somebody screaming. That is a picture of somebody hearing a scream that nobody else can hear. It's an image of madness. Ah. And that is where Stan ends up. He has seen something that the others have not seen, and he cannot possibly describe. He should have a chat with Bev. <laughs> that's what changes it. it like having that affect Bev as well means that Stan had the opportunity to reach out to her and clearly won't or doesn't mm. well then that gives them a perfect opportunity to talk about that whole hey guys don't tell anybody when you're feeling shit keep it all to yourself because nobody wants to hear you complain yeah. Yeah. bury your feelings deep down yeah, <laughs> deep down with a won't bother anybody <laughs> kudos to them for a really unique monster design also because that yeah. woman was Terrifying. Yeah. Oh yes. 
Um, I only have kind of two really quick things to say kind of left. First of all, I think um, a lot of credit needs to go to Benjamin Walfish, the composer for this. Because that score did such an amazing job of just building the atmosphere from kind of moment one. Yeah. Playing the audience like a piano, but very, very subtly. And he's a bit of an up-and-comer. I mean, he's he's been in the industry for a while now, but these past couple of years, he did the score for Annabelle Creation, Cure for Wellness, this, and now his next movie is Blade Runner 2049, which is a huge set of shoes to walk into. For score, Shit, it and Blade Runner, yeah, Jesus. yeah, he is a big up and comer. I think Benjamin Walfish. We should keep an eye on his name. Honestly, I think it's get, like you might be able to walk because it's going to carry on and run and run. You might be able to walk out of one Benjamin Walfish <laughs> scored movie and into another. Yeah, yeah. seriously, a couple of weeks time. Yeah. Oh Jesus, he's younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> he's only a bit older than me. Yeah, yeah he is. He is almost exactly one year younger than me. In fact. Oh, oh, dude, he did Hidden Figures this year as well. Yeah, oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Wow. Look at this guy. Uh, this might be his year. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is, and this is actually my best friend Dave came up with this uh, theory, and I really liked it. When Pennywise at the end says fear, it's not necessarily because that's the thing that drives him. It's because Henry Bowers is still alive, and he senses Bowers' fear, and that's the last victim that he needs before he can safely go to sleep for 27 years. It's huh. That's him getting it out, like... Fear, and then he a, goes away to get the Bowers. Okay. And then Bowers yeah, can come out crazy. Well. If it went to get Bowers, like at the bottom of a fucking well, uh, like wouldn't it just eat the shit out of him? Why? He could use him later. It's weakened. It, it needs him. It doesn't need the flesh. It needs the, just needs the fear. Yeah. Right. I want to suck that fear through a straw, boy. You just sit there. Mm-hmm. We'll be fine. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm I'm fine with either interpretation. We may get it confirmed or disconfirmed in the second one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could I could see them using feature Patrick Wilson. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I I could see them using Tom instead of um, using Henry Bowers and Tom because they both kind of fill the same role in the novel. Um, So I could Mm -hmm. see it being you know Beverly's husband who is sort of Bowers the sequel and also her dad. You know, kind of. You know, doing that instead, but yeah. you know, I yeah, you know, we'll find out. That makes yeah. sense, and it does give a reason to give more character development on Tom, which you could otherwise not really justify if since, he's only going to be in it. But since all yeah. Henry Bowers does is much like the guy of The Shining, get contacted, spend a long, long time getting there, and then fail at his intended <laughs> task. <laughs> oh, for others, yeah. poor for others. <sighs> yeah. Um. The idea of a Stephen King cinematic universe, like it's taken this long, now is the time for the studios to play ball with each other. Yeah. Yeah. If the guys making the Dark Tower had just held off for a little bit, just a little bit, like they they were in such a rush to get it made, get it out there in 93 minutes or less, that they could have perhaps worked in collaboration with these guys or that these guys Maybe could have done even it even borrowed Finn Wolfhard yeah. <laughs> well, these guys yeah. could have done the, the Dark Tower after, like, after it when they're hot shit they're like right let's do the Dark Tower series that one actually does warrant sequels yeah. Yeah. Um, but instead, they they rushed that out, and it turned out to be what it 
is, which is actually, I don't know if you folks haven't heard my uh, quick review at home, uh, not all that terrible. A disappointment, a bitter disappointment for fans of the book, and a complete non-starter at the box office. So, the only slightly pants. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, a, a cautionary tale. Chaps, if you will. Yeah, kind of like a, uh, kind of like because cowboy, I get it. Yeah. I'm I'm also really excited to see the return of movie monsters. Uh, that that's I think we're going to see that be a big thing. Whether it's you know I. I don't. I think we'll probably see some people take really stupid lessons away from this because that's how, what Hollywood does. But you know, mm. as much as I like The Conjuring, um, I'm ready for there to be movie monsters that aren't just ghosts and different. That rush at you and, and do screamy face. Yeah, yeah like some ghosts have done. Uh, ghosts have been uh, kind of done to death at this point. Let's let's put them aside. Yeah, for and a I while. Just, I just miss monsters. Like I, I, I want to see some really cool monster stuff happen in movies again. And like Pennywise has so many cool monster things that that he does in this. You know, that's part of why I love Pennywise is you get the creepy clown, but you also get like a side order of like this. You know, it's basically a monster buffet because it has all these different things. Because like the leper, which is just disgusting. Oh yeah, yeah. oh the leper is amazing. Oh. And, and just all this other stuff. And so, like, I want to see more monsters in horror movies that you can physically interact with and that have to be created through, you know, makeup and, and digital and more animatronic stuff like they had to do with parts of this. I was also, like, you know, I, I often, like, rant about uh, CG. There was a, a great physicality to Pennywise... I never got distracted by the effects. I, I, I never thought, would you just stop with the stretch and spin of the of, of CG? Um, everything that happened, I kind of just forgot about how they were doing it because it seemed plausible that they could have done it in either way, which is really the the best way to do with the effects is for people not to think about them. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the refrigerator bit is a really yeah, good Yeah, exactly the bit I was thinking. Like That is physically impossible, and yet it seemed partly puppet partly cg the way that the iron man suit is part yeah. and part you know mm-hmm. or it could be all one or all the other but like you all you're doing is focusing on how fucking horrible it is to watch unfold mm. literally unfold mm. uh-huh. and that it, that also follows from one of like the blackest bits of humor of scary very scary not at all scary <laughs> <laughs> well and, and i think it's you know that's again it goes back to on the cusp of adulthood the fact that the things that that really, in general, the things that are most scary as an adult generally come out of the most mundane, everyday parts of life. They have vast, vast potential to um, not so much play fast and loose, but to interpret the uh, and reinterpret the the second half of the novel in new ways for for twenty seventeen to twenty. 2019 by the time it finally comes out and yeah like I said we will be there with bells on with bells on <laughs> to talk about it and uh, yeah so where can people find you start with Karen and Debbie um, you can find me at sequentially-yours.com um, where we I talk about comics um, and Debbie and I talk together about comic based movies uh, we have all sorts of different shows on there uh, you can find me m- mainly as either Debbie Morse or Best at 8300 on Twitter. 
Um, I do have a YouTube channel called Hats Off. Um, right now has only one video on it, um, so I've been kind of slow in getting those out. But it's a deep dive into, ba- into Baby Driver. Yeah, which if oh, you nice. haven't seen Baby Driver, watch Baby Driver! Agreed. Uh, Brendan? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. Um, I haven't been doing as much other podcasting after being a dad, but... Uh, <laughs> <I haven't>... What? What? <laughs> Yeah, funny. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't been seeing a whole lot of movies either. It's weird. <laughs> but the um, the other place you can find me is uh, normannerd.blogspot.com where I write reviews. And then primarily my my uh, online home has been uh, synapse.co, which is C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co. I should have something up uh, around the time this uh, recording goes live uh, that's specifically about the fear and belief and themes of that in it. And if you go to uh, alexandershawpatreon.com, that's where you can find a whole ton of extra content. Uh, mentioned Mother a couple of times. We did 53 minutes on Mother. We did The Dark Tower recently as well. We did It as well. When I get back from the cinema, I t- tell Sharon about what I've seen. I you know, give it like a sort of a, a once-over. It's never as in-depth as uh, our, our main stuff. But a lot of it's sort of very raw and very passionate. And a lot of it's like sort of... Uh, when it's popping in my mind for the first time, which can create some great moments. We did quick reviews on Dunkirk and The Revenant and Cars 3, It Comes at Night and Alien Covenant and King Arthur and Food Fight and Transformers 5 and a real Ghostbusters episode called Night Game and how that applies to our current political situation and behind-the-scenes shows from Stranger Things and To the Moon and there's one coming up for The Room... And uh, Mother was is uh, it, it might be gut churning to watch, but it, from the sounds of it, it's quite entertaining to listen to because I described the whole plot to Sharon and she interpreted it, and then I gave her my interpretation. And I am pretty sure, having since you um, did that, read a couple of other people's rundowns of what happens in mm-hmm. the film, I'm pretty sure I'm enjoying experiencing it as a story that other people have told me than I would More as a film that I sat down and watched. <laughs> but you can check that out, folks, if you are part of our $5 crowd. And if you're a part of our $15 crowd, you get special name privileges. So that would be Tom Painter, Finbar Nickel, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Shisham. All of you guys... Thank you very, very, very much. And we will be back next week. Oh man, I haven't even told you about the the like the packed the packed schedule we've got for fall and, and winter. Right. Coming up on School of Movies Podcast in the next few months. Blade Runner, The Golden Compass. Coraline. Dawn of the Dead, but that also includes Night of the Living Dead. And Day of the Dead and Land of the Dead. I think you guys know because you were on it. (laughs) (laughs) The Fifth Element and Thor Ragnarok and Logan and Spider-Man Homecoming and Rogue One and Star Wars The Last Jedi and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and then in January, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan and Tarzan and that's before we start our Guillermo del Toro season, our Steven Spielberg season, our James Cameron season. It's going to be a good year for School of Movies. If you like School of Movies, if you really like School of Movies, you aren't supporting us yet, chuck us a few dollars. It's always good. It helps the show to go from strength to strength. 
And also, if you like reading what I have to say, check out the brand new Movie A Day Volume 2, which should by this point be now published on the Kindle store. You can get Volume 1 now at a reduced cost from what it was originally published at, and Volume 2 as well. That is 200 written movie essays. And some of them are really good. <coughs> one of them originated the term a Jenga made of vibrators. I don't remember which one. I think it might have been the mummy. What? But uh, <laughs> that was on our room show. <laughs> but actually, I'm, I'm glad that you said it, Sharon, because it would have seemed wrong if I'd said it on the podcast <laughs> for the first time. I can understand. I, I can't honestly say that it didn't seem wrong when I said it. <laughs> well, it's, 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 just, it's always got to be a little it's, wrong. It's all full of wrong, yeah. really. That's kind of the point. Okay. So that is it from us. We will be back next week, actually, with the concluding BoJack Horseman shows. We were originally going to do BoJack last week, but we actually lost all of our Season 2 chat. It was with these guys. It was recorded a year ago, last September, and it just it got lost in the in the transition we we saved all of our season three stuff and that was the important stuff um and we're going to talk about seasons two and four when we record next week but by that point we'll have that geared up so you guys get two three and four all at once in one massive massive epic bojack show it's going to put you through an emotional ringer but it is totally worth watching through bojack for so you know what to do and after that i believe it's blade runner I'm very excited about that slate, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, Blade Runner confirmed. It's uh, it's Bojack 2, 3, and 4, and then Blade Runner. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, right in time for Blade Runner 2049's release. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, thank you very, very much, guys. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. We will see you very soon for other stuff, but we will definitely see you in a couple of years' time for It. Chapter 2. Chapter 2? Part two. Really? A part. This is a part. <laughs> it's a very, very Shouldn't long. It's the last time you heard Shouldn't of anything that only had two? two chapters. Yeah, it's book two. Yeah. Or or, or, or half book two. I don't know. <laughs> or uh, about the it the other half. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, it's chapters two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, oh, sixteen, eighteen. Nice. I think I think you'll find the, the official subtitle is it to in it to win it. <laughs> <laughs> it strikes back. Revenge of it. <laughs> it awakens. Ooh. Attack of the it. Revenge. It falls. Revenge of it. And the phantom it. <laughs> and we're done. Okay. <laughs> so, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's, school's out. out. We're rough. <laughs> <laughs> Always talking about who's on top Don't cross our path Cause you're gonna get stuck We ain't gonna give anybody any slack And if you try to keep us down We're gonna come right back And you know
Jump scare.